0: Welcome to this episode of the Hagman and Hagman Report. We're coming to you live from our radio and television studios here in beautiful northwest Pennsylvania. Actually, it's a beautiful day up here. It's... uh about 78 degrees, sunny, warm. We got this. No, it's not, but you know, it's nice. Hey, it's warm today. Yeah, it is warm, uh, relative for the uh, time of year. We broadcast folks live every weeknight. That's Monday through Friday for those mentally uh, impaired with respect to days, like I am, when the Monday through Friday from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern time, right here, our flagship station, Global Star Radio Network. We're also simulcast on Blog Talk, and of course, you can watch us live in our, by archive. Right here on our YouTube channel, links to each audio and video broadcasting venue can be found at our home base. That's Hagman and Hagman.com. And don't forget, we've got two separate websites. We've got Hagman and Hagman.com. That's for the show information. And then we've got HagmanReport.com. And that, of course, is for news and information of the day. Now I'm Doug Hagman the Helmuth Film Investigator Researcher and my son, Joe Hagman, together. We are the Hagman and Hagman Report. I like to call America's premier father-son investigative reporting team. Contrary to popular belief, I'm not a former federal prosecutor. Don't believe what you read. No, I, uh, apparently, uh, from yeah. Alex Jones, uh, put up
2: uh, the audio the video, and somebody over there made a mistake. Apparently. That's where that came from. Uh, yeah. We were talking this morning, and I heard that. Being yeah, around. I was wondering yeah. what you're no. talking
0: about. Somebody misidentified me as a former federal prosecutor and of course uh it's, it's on there and not not our and I never said that and um, so we got people working to take care of that if it hasn't been taken care of already. Having said all of that, Joe was on uh, with the uh, Dave Hodges hey, yesterday and I
2: did a good job. He listen to that. Thank and, uh, you. Got yeah. a few uh, emails, too, yeah. from people who enjoyed yeah. the, the show, and it was fun, as always. it got, got a little worried there when you were talking about uh, uh, Trump. Uh, well, you know, I read, I was reading on an internet forum about the, possi- I don't know where the people came, as I said on the show, it wasn't anything that was verified or confirmed, but there was a, uh, a campaign to get information out about Trump, a Trump visit to Chicago. Yeah, and yep, that's what March. you're talking about. I, I know. And there was speculation that, you know, that, that would be the day that there would be an assassination attempt.
0: March 11th is what you said, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. And that was just something well, I read. Why on. did you pick that day, or is that just... That's what a I read on the day. message board. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, people had information about it and about the event, and they were saying, you know, get the word out uh, before they, you know, something like this does happen. Um, and well, it was right before the show, uh... But something, I mean, people should be aware of when we have these, you know, we talked about on, on Dave's show last night why the, the hate of Donald Trump is allowed to continue on Facebook, on Twitter, uh, you know, why these people are allowed to basically threaten his life and uh, get away with it. And, and, you know, these pages aren't taken down from Facebook, the tweets aren't taken off from Twitter.
0: Right. And I, I noticed, um, wow, the Glenn Glenn Beck remark, <clears throat> Which one? Where he was talking about stab, uh, the stabbing just won't stop or yeah, yeah. something to that effect. I don't know exactly what he said, but you know, he tried to... Uh,
2: he said uh, if he was sitting next to him uh, yeah, uh, yeah, and he had a knife, the stabbing just wouldn't stop. We're
0: standing on stage next to him. But <coughs> apparently the Secret Service, when he was at CPAC, the Secret Service had visited the Dallas, or wherever he's at, broadcast from him, wherever wherever he's out of... <coughs> visited the, um, his, uh, his lair there, apparently, but, uh, anyway, yeah, it was surprised me that, uh, that this would, uh, uh, I, I just surprised me, I guess, to hear that, folks, I don't know if that surprised you or not, but surprised me, anyway, um, I don't care if you're talking about. I don't care who you're talking about. I don't care if you're talking about Obama. I don't care if you're talking about. It doesn't matter. You just don't make statements like that. It's. It's. You don't. You just don't make statements like that. It's not responsible. It's not. Um. You just don't, right? I mean, no. Or, or it, you shouldn't expect to make statements like that with with impunity. And I'm talking about the uh, statement that uh, again about stabbing. The stabbing wouldn't stop, in, in reference to uh, what I believe was to. uh
2: Um, clearly Donald Trump. But anyway. Before we we get going, just a quick announcement. Um, We're going to be in in Dallas next week as the uh, Here the Watchmen conference is starting March 18th through the 20th. And um, the people who put the conference together (laughs) want us to, to remind you, the listeners, that you can save $50 off the ticket purchasing using the promotional code of Hagman. Um, this is the last week. and last uh, uh, I didn't put it up on from uh, this Monday till till next Monday. Use the promotional code Hagman. You can get fifty dollars off of your ticket purchase.
0: You, you know. You know what? Yes, thank you for reminding me of that. And and you know, I didn't. I failed to put up tonight's YouTube broadcast. To YouTube on on our website. I, I, I I've been just cramming. Um. All right. I'll. I'll and
2: that. If, if, and also, people who are not able to attend, they have the option of going to hearthewatchman.com and signing up for the live stream link. It's only twenty nine dollars for the ability to watch the whole conference on uh, from the comfort of your own couch uh, on the computer. Yeah.
0: But but I'll tell you, it's going to be a lot. I mean, it'll be a lot of fun to do that. But it would be just as fun coming. Uh, and, and, uh, rubbing elbows with people like JB Wells and Greg Jackson and Coach Dave Dabemeyer and, uh, all the people who are going to be there, yeah. you know? And, uh, uh, it's going to be a good time. I mean, it's, uh, I, I look at that clock and I, I I'm starting to sweat and, uh, <laughs> what yeah. the heck? I mean, first of all, the reason I'm, the reason, because I'm, I'm, oh man.
2: You know, when you go out of town and you travel for uh, things like this, I mean, uh, yeah, you know especially here in the, I mean, in the Hagman Studios when we're all going, and it's a, it seems like there's this mad rush uh, until the day you're sitting on the plane and, and you can't turn back. And, and you're, you got a, you, you know, got a year
0: you got a year to plan. You got yeah. six months to plan. Okay, and I don't I don't care. It's like a minute. <laughs> and it, it's it, you just did you get did you do this. No, no, and it's kind of like our show. Well, yeah. I, I had all day to put that that link up. Mm-hmm. Uh, for tonight's program on Hagman and dot com and uh yeah. yeah yeah well yeah I was on the phone until five minutes before the uh top of the hour and and, and it was just it was uh, i've been busy since uh about five thirty this morning, so it's just been crazy um folks, portions of tonight's broadcast brought to you by WholeTonesLive.com. dot com dot com have you gone there yet
2: tomorrow have uh, you gone there yeah, tomorrow. michael Terrell will be our guest. For the first two hours, he is the owner of Holton's Live. He was on with us before. I got a lot of questions
0: for him with respect to the frequency aspect of
2: it. Yeah, thanks. But Holton's Live is a fantastic product. It not only uh, from our listeners have we seen positive responses, but how much on how much it's not only helped physically but mentally. The ability to relax, to uh, the, the healing properties that it, it brings. Uh, it is something that. Uh, it's a product that we are proud to be uh, to have as a sponsor
0: oh absolutely and and folks i'd urge everyone to go to wholetoneslive dot com that's wholetoneslive dot com download download a free sample and, and while you're there they don't just merely do that but certainly sign up for and and take uh take possession of Purchase the DVDs, CDs. That is that they offer, and that's wholetoneslive.com. More on the more on that later. But tonight we've got uh, Peter Lavenda during the second hour. Uh, how many people have heard of Peter Lavenda? Uh, if you if you, if you don't know who Peter Lavenda is, uh, Peter Lavenda is, is an author. He's he wrote twelve books. Um, I was introduced to him in part through. Russ Dizdar, okay, um, and then uh, there was references to him, Paul McGuire, but but um, Paul, uh, Russ Dizdar had mentioned him. Now, Sinister Forces; these are books. It's a trilogy. It's a three book series. Um, just a wealth of knowledge. And in these three books, you know, when we were in Ohio, the the mounds in Ohio. It talks about the mounds in Ohio. Talks about the Charles Manson coming from the area where the mounds are. Talks about uh, the mounds and uh, ancient uh, sites relative to serial killers and serial killings. It talk. He talks about a lot of things of counterculture in here and about where we are today because of where we were yesterday. I've read those books. Yes, I know you have. I have. And then we've got the Hitler legacy, ratlines, and unholy alliance, all, all blowing out of the water any suggestion that Hitler died in the bunker or outside the bunker or was burned outside the bunker and Ava Braun in 1945. And the origins of global jihad, as I've often talked about, come from really his book. So, uh, I'm going to have a great two hours with him tonight, folks. If you're listening to this, just tuning in, uh, grab somebody off the street. Just go out. Okay, if you're listening to this in your apartment, just go out and just grab somebody and bring them in and make them listen to the show. Okay, or call your mama, your papa, your son, your daughter, your cousin, your, and have them sign on and listen to the show because it's going to be an interesting show and it's going to be, I mean, look this guy has a lot of I mean he's done a lot of research on a lot of information I'm not going to build him up any more than that except to say that um the factual information and the research that he's done in here is just incredible and we're going to be asking him about Sinister Forces this is a grimoire of American political witchcraft very interesting book one book two is about um uh, a warm gun and this gets <laughs> oh book two gets into some interesting things um, um you know what I'm just going to let him surprise you but uh uh, and then of course book three is about, uh, the, uh, Manson, Manson secret. I, I was, going to make sure I had that right. It wasn't, make sure it wasn't in book two, but book three is about Charlie Manson and, and the mounds and such and, and about other killings and Laurel Canyon and about all of that counterculture and then of course his studies into Hitler and he's working on, uh, a project right now. I, he won't tell anyone what it is, so. I'm not sure if we can get it out of him, but uh anyway, but I the news is be good
2: regardless
0: yeah. i mean yeah now, we've got a lot of things to get into tonight as well before he his appearance folks you i mean unless unless you've been living under a rock, okay, you know that things are are uh, things are going sideways um headlines uh, Headlines with respect to the election. Okay, Of course, Rubio is an injured dog. Uh, Cruz, of course, the establishment Republicans are pushing him, and Trump is the redheaded stepchild okay. of the establishment. And Hillary, and of course Bernie Sanders on the other side of the fence. One is a blatant uh, socialist, the other, which is really a mere, merely a stepping stone toward communists, the other is a full-blown communist, and that's uh, Sanders and, and uh, Clinton uh 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 respectively. So and uh uh so where are we at? I mean, you know and, and you've got the world leaders actually coming out and saying oh we can't have Trump and
2: uh, that thing. Yeah,
0: yeah. And then you got the Mexican president comparing Trump to Hitler and Mussolini Back Here the it comes. Same
2: thing on Stephanopoulos. Yep. Um this morning. And you know there is a um a big, thank you, Thank you, Ronald. This is either a a big deception or uh, what Newt Gingrich said last week about Trump not being initiated, not being part of the inner circle of elites. Right. He either is is the deception or he is the real deal and the establishment is worried. Now, where we go from here with that information... uh, (coughs) Well... I don't know. I mean, you, you know, we talked about this. A- Dave Hodges wrote a great article on he, Trump. Yeah, the elite got Trumped on Super Tuesday. Um, he gets into some of the aspects of of the ins and outs of the election and what they've done to Trump. We've seen it on on the debates. We've seen, uh, and, and Dave mentioned this how he was watching the the debate and, um, you know, they would pose <coughs> <coughs> or show videos or or side shows or have somebody. Give a comment of what one of the moderators of the debate would say against Donald Trump, and he would not get the opportunity to rebut the statement. So there is a lot of appearing to be uh, trickery and deception going on, making him try to look bad. And but uh, you know, can they do that? Uh, I believe that you know Trump is already uh, a lock in many people's minds who decided to vote for him. And, yeah, that article you know, you're looking at here about the RNC yeah, and the $50 million grant.
0: Uh, look, folks, I we, I talked about Cleveland, Ohio. If you, if you go back into mm-hmm. the 60s, late 60s, and I've talked about this before, Cleveland, I mean, a lot of Cleveland was burned down back in the riots during the 1960s in the, in the late 60s. Uh, the RNC is going to be there. The convention, Republican National Convention is going to be um Having their convention in Cleveland this July, they ordered what 50 million federal, uh, 50 million dollars in federal security, gr- uh, yep. uh, ride control suits and such. 2,000 sets so of riot gear, 50 million dollars worth uh, worth of money, worth of investment. Um, and it's so 50 million dollars gets is 2,000. Right. Instead well, yeah. I mean, no, I th- there's more than that because the city also, um, yeah, they're, they're running, running three, 8, three, 10, miles, 10 three miles. Three miles of still barriers. Three miles. Now, think about that. Three yeah, miles. Some three and a half feet high, some six and a half feet high. Right. Right. And so you're looking at three miles of interlocking barriers that would, would, six and a half feet tall. Uh, so what are they expecting?
2: Well, you remember mm-hmm. that the, uh, The conventions are constitution-free zones. They have um, taken away the ability of protest. That's right. That's right. I forget under what law or executive order that they they did this or if this was part of the NDAA. But they have turned these into uh, basically, uh, you know, you can just get arrested if if you are are a journalist without the proper credentials. Or you are some kind of political protester, you will not be tolerated to be there. They will have a zone for you to stand in, three miles away from the event, you know, roped off into a little section. Well, but if you don't listen, you can be arrested. You
0: know, I'm very, I'm very concerned about not, uh, it really makes to me, it makes a little difference about who gets in as much as. Well, I shouldn't say that. I mean, obviously, I, I'm concerned about who gets in because we want someone who's going to adhere to the Constitution, and, and you cannot adhere to the Constitution in the other way, all right, as well. I mean, we have to, the Constitution is a lawful document that we need to adhere to, and in a, a communist won't, and a socialist won't, but then neither would a uh, tyrannical dictator, even that, even if that person's benevolent um so we we have to really keep in mind that we need to follow the law of the law of the land which is the constitution but no one's doing it but what concerns me is it it seems to me that uh if you if you listen to and believe people like roger stone um he he was recently banned from cnn and and uh, i know he's on infowars i think uh maybe the day i was on or the day before um Republicans are he said they're going to try to steal the election away from Trump uh, and, and maybe go with the with uh, Ryan or Romney or who knows it do, it, see it doesn't matter. The, the person in that in the wings I, I, I shouldn't say it doesn't matter but it, it, it's down on the pole of things that do matter. The, the fact that they are going to do this would create some a, a lot of ruckus within the, uh, within the uh, uh, party. And certainly within the, within the community, and to what end? Well, again, you know, I, I go back to saying, and, and Joe, I think this is this is the way it is. There are no Republicans and Democrats or conservatives and, and progressives anymore. There are, but but certainly not in government. Our government has been captured, taken over from within, and, of course, we have this, uh, this giant shift to the progressive left, to the communist, Marxist, socialist, uh, and, yes, you can have, be all three ideologically on the same spectrum. Uh, many try to equate neo Nazism and, and national socialism and socialism to the right. No 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 you can be a liberal fascist as well. But having said all that, um we're not part of this party. We're not part of the party of there is no party of the people anymore. And I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat. Whatever, the Republicans or conservatives has done to us. That's CPAC, you know. If you went to that and, and you're expecting anything from CPAC, what a flippin' joke that is. Are you serious? CPAC, conservative? What? That hasn't been conservative in five years. That's just a, a rubber stamping of a. That's a joke. It really is. I, I mean, CPAC. Come on. And 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 I see people on websites, you know. Promoting it and uh, it, the conservative values. It, it hasn't been conservative in, in, I shouldn't say five years, probably eight years. Um, I, I don't know. Folks, I, it doesn't matter. Does it matter? Does it matter to you?
2: CPAC. Remember when it was actually a conservative political event?
0: Yeah, well, n- not anymore. Not, I mean, obviously not anymore. Now, uh, yeah, so many, like I said, there's so much going on here and there's so many news stories and, and, and I'm going to tell you right now, I, I have a concern and, and my concern is this summer, as we, as we go through the summer and yes, the Republican convention, what are we looking at in terms of what can happen? Um, we, you know, you had mentioned yesterday on, on the Common Sense show with, uh, with uh dave Hodges look, there could be something very very wrong that would happen with donald trump or with the entire the, the entire mechanism of our election process i i don't know i i mean it, it, and what happens when that happens well you know does and, and i and I watch on on fox News um when I visit my father in law and you know he's trying to understand trying to keep his head in politics which is incredibly hard to do um <clears throat> even for people who are not suffering from mental impairments but um I, I, George Will um and others on the on the republican side just cringing uh, at the lack of civility, and, and you know, to some extent, I am too. The lack of civility, the lack of statesmanship that we see among people and in, in running for for office, and uh, I don't want to make this all about the elections, but but we're we're seeing this this lack of civility. And a comment was made because of Nancy Reagan passing away this weekend. Uh, a comment was made. You know, what would uh, Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan think about this kind of this kind of talk? Well you know they were and and people have a tendency to think not remember the nixon kennedy debates and the the backdoor stabbing the backstabbing that went on kennedy nixon and how nixon was you know people talk about the lights being on on, on trump and messing them up they miss you up <laughs> they, they do not mess them up but if you remember the lights on kennedy or on, on nixon and no makeup and Kennedy comes out and you know all tanned up and you know and they, they have softened the lighting on them and then a few people remember that or read about it in history books all right so anyway um, it's it's nothing new that we're not seeing anything new under the sun these people don't have any these people don't have any new games they they're playing or new uh uh I don't know. They're just—they're no, not—they're just doing their thing that they've always done. It's just now becoming more overt, and and that's just the way it is. Now it's becoming more overt, and people are saying, "Okay, yeah." I mean, they're accepting it for crying out loud. It's—it's it's ridiculous. They're accepting all of this anyway. Um, is trump do you feel is is trump going to shake the world order as as some are reporting or is this just a flash in the pan or is he going to just be that's the million dollar question you know, i yeah. mean <laughs> well don't you wish you knew i mean yeah I, you know and you pray for discernment and you yeah. ask for discernment but the bottom line is you know it it, it can a man save us anyway, especially now. We we know that a lot of the powers, uh, the legislative powers, have been uh, given to the executive branch. So, it, it really at any moment you could have the executive branch take over anything, and and the Congress and judiciary could barely do anything. Mm-hmm. Of course, unless it's about unless, unless it's about uh, you know immigration or abortion, in which case they would uh, jump on it in a heartbeat. Um, 61 million uh, illegal immigrants in the United States right now. 61 million immigrants. Uh, well, let me let me rephrase that. 61 million in the United States, and 15.7 million illegally. Remember when people were trying to say, "Oh, it's only two or three or six million at the most, five million maybe." Now it's at 15.7. The real numbers, according to Numbers USA and others, put it at two to th- two to three times that mm-hmm. in the United States um uh, yeah no, no signs of slowing down no no you know it's in 1970 the census uh 1970 census and December 2015 current population survey uh it, it's it's an amazing if you haven't seen this this figure on the Washington examiner the number and share of the U.S. population uh, comprised of immigrants and their young children has grown since 1970, from 13.5 million, representing 606 percent, to 18.9 percent at 61 million.
2: Can we even call them illegal immigrants at this point, <clears throat> since they're allowed well, to be here? They're being, you know, given no, no. not only uh, yeah benefits, but <clears throat> uh, being helped helped along uh, so much so that you know this. Sanctuary city idea—we've turned into a sanctuary nation, where sheriffs get in trouble for trying to arrest and deport illegal aliens.
0: Well, when, uh, they're outpacing us. Okay, uh, see, the number of immigrants and their young children have grown six times faster than the nation's total population from from 1970 to 2015. So, in 45 years, 353 <laughs> percent versus 59 percent. So they're 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 coming in, and they're having babies like rabbits okay that's sorry that's the way that's really what it is and since 2000 the number of immigrants has increased 18.4 million uh and now one in every five u.s residents are immigrants and don't give me this crap that oh we were all immigrants all right now no because we do have you know it, it just it riles me up because here's the deal okay you've got a culture rending here, the rending of our culture and our value system, when you bring in people who do not assimilate into this country, when you bring in Arab Muslims, and you bring in Palestinians, and you bring in the flipping Muslim Brotherhood, and all the people from the Middle East, and you bring in the culture that is antithetical to the Judeo-Christian fabric of this country, you are ruining this country, and you're doing so intentionally. And don't think for one minute that this hasn't been planned by the Tavistock Institute and the people behind it and the, and when I say tavistock institute i'm talking about their American arms here in this country and the Rockefellers and the Carnegies and the fords and all of the people that have gone way back when what's their whats whats what's their, what are they, what's their intent their intent is to rip down the moral and cultural Tent poles of the United States of America, and with it comes religion. And you know what? The middle class, you folks, are the ones that will get it, it hit the hardest. Why? Because the rich are insulated by their money, and the poor they they're on the dole anyway. When I say on the dole, understand they're being subsidized. Okay, so uh, they're not going to they're not going to feel the effects as much. When and again, I'm not making any. Uh, any disparaging remarks about that, because believe me, we ain't no upper middle class here, okay? And, and you know, look, I just... So, so settle down. No, no, no. No, instead of me settle down, you get the hell out of here. Okay, because I... No, no. I'm not going to settle down, and I'll tell you why I'm not going to settle down. Because while I still have breath... And while I still have life, and while we still have a semblance of law and order in this country, while there are still laws in this country, while I still believe in God, while I'm still allowed to say I believe in God on the airwaves, then I'm going to do it. And and, and the reason that we're losing this country is because people tell other people to settle down. If people didn't settle down, if people got wild, maybe things would change. When do things change? When people start giving a damn. So start giving a damn and stop telling someone shut You go. All right.
2: That's it. I'm done. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into um, uh, some of the uh, what you just mentioned about right. the let's do it foreign with, let's diplomats voicing concerns sure. about Donald Trump becoming the not only nominee but president. This is from Reuters. Foreign diplomats are expressing alarm to U.S. government officials about what they say are inflammatory and insulting public statements by the presidential, Republican presidential frontrunner Donald Trump. Officials from Europe, the Middle East, Latin America, and Asia have complained in recent private conversations mostly about the xenophobic nature of Trump's statements and said three U.S. officials who all declined to be identified. As the Trump rhetoric has continued, in some cases amped up, uh, so to have concerns by certain leaders around the world, one of the officials said. Three officials declined to disclose a full list of countries whose diplomats complained, but two said they include at least India, South Korea, Japan, and Mexico. And this next statement says it all for me. Um, Well, there is no Mexico. There's (laughs) just a mexican Uh, Adah. U.S. officials said it was highly unusual for foreign diplomats to express concern, even privately, about candidates in the mit- midst of a presidential campaign. And they're right, I don't remember a time ever seeing, uh, of course I haven't been around and paying attention for too many elections, but um, when do you remember all kinds of different nations weighing in on the primary uh, of a, a U.S. election for president? Well, and a lot, a lot of people. And what are they worried about? Now, see,
0: and, and and that's okay. That's the question right there. And let's look at this logically. A lot of people would say, "All right, well, they're 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 afraid." Uh, about Trump. And that's the only reason they're thrilled they're with Trump. But, but think about this. Why are, because now that's a great question. Why are they weighing in on this? Well, I'll tell you why they're weighing it's in the on trade this. TPP. It's, it's the TPP, it's this globalization. We are all citizens of the world, not just of the United States. And people have to really understand that. People have to start understanding that we don't have any borders anymore. If we had borders, there wouldn't be uh, 61 million al- aliens in this country. All right. If we didn't have, if we had government, there wouldn't be sixty-one freaking aliens in this country that the majority of which we're were, were subsidizing. Mm -hmm. Okay, and and there wouldn't be. And if we had governance in this country, there wouldn't be the race wars that. uh, Now, let me let me go back because I, people say, well, wait a minute. We had race wars back in the sixties. We did. Yes, we did. We did. That's very true. The race, the racial situation is. A little bit different than, a little bit different than other things. But, Joe, I'm gonna tell you this. Um, it's being fomented, fomented by the powers in Washington inside the Beltway. Why? Because in order to tear it all, in order to build it up, we need to tear it all down. So uh, make sure there's no wall and uh, break everything down on the southern border. Make the northern border very porous. Make travel restrictions here in the United States. Which, by the way, let me just digress a moment. The Real ID Act, nine states. Somebody sent me an email, and I didn't get a chance to email back about which states were, because Josh Talley mentioned, you know, pretty soon we're not going to be able to to domestically travel. Right, you'll need a
2: passport to travel state to state. Right, because their license don't contain the chip, right? Yep, because they don't. uh, Well, that's the the reason why, but they'll say that they don't meet federal standards and requirements by law. But uh, those standards are the the RFID chip. In right. The cards, okay. Like the passports have.
0: Well. Yeah. It, it, so, the states that go don't go along with this, and, and I really think what, I really believe what what we need here is a revolt on a state level and on a local level. When I say revolt, I'm talking about uh, the the governor saying to the federal government, "Look, we're not going to take your money. We don't need your money," because. Uh, People think that the federal money that, that the states get is just given to them gratis, you know, no strings attached. Well, of course, there's a lot of strings, but the states give the federal government a lot of money, too. So it's it's more like, okay, we're going to give you $100 and then take $105 back from you. We'll keep the, the the initial $100 and tell the federal government to stick it in their ear. That's, that's one of the ways we could show uh, revolt. That's really simple. And another, another way is for, on the local level, let's go ahead and, and push hard locally. See, I mean, people say, well, all you do is talk. Well, no, you gotta, you gotta get involved. And I, you know, we're involved on a local level to as, to the extent that we can, and, and on a state level, and to some extent on a federal level. We bring people on, we educate people, um, so, you know, that's, that's part of changing the hearts and minds of people. But yeah, we need to fight this. And you know what? When we go to there, I'll tell you what. I may not be in Dallas. If the listeners or the organizers are listening to this, I may not be in Dallas because I'm going to tell you something. Ain't no one is going to nuke me or feel me up. All right. And certainly now my daughter's going to be there too. And I guarantee you, let me tell you, there, there's going to be, there's going to be some really, really ugly crap. Okay if some some Walmart employee in a TSA uniform touches my daughter, my wife, or my junk. All right? i just Joe. I mean, I, I woke up on the wrong side of the bed in Montana, and I guess I almost was a resident of Montana for a while.
2: Mm-hmm. You had to tell him I was going to leave without him. But no, I mean. But I, I'm no serious. Way. So, you know, you might have to fill that space for me. Cause I might be, I might be, you know. We'll just, uh, get, get a doctor to shoot you full of sedatives and drag you through the airport. But no, I mean, that's oh, what, you better, out, you better make sure I'm damn well out because I, it ain't <laughs> happening.
0: But, but see, this is what we need to do. And I, and I, and I, and well, I. Well, how
2: many of the states are going to comply with the Real ID Act if people just continue to travel as normal? And, and or, you know. I mean, this applies to airports and air travel. You're not going to need a passport to drive from state to state. If you're flying, yes Well,
0: well, you know what Then screw the flying, okay Bankrupt the airlines Mm -hmm. And get the TSA the hell out of the airports And get them out of the stadiums Don't go to the games How many people go to the games and, And put up with the TSA? Are you serious? Why? Why? Get out of there who in the hell are you to ask me for ID or to make me go through some sort of whatever it is that you make me go through? I'm not going to do that. That's not that, that's it's not, not even right. That's not mean, even the law that you you're need glorified to carry out Walmart employees that have prison records that haven't found a terrorist since they they, they started the TSA, and we're supposed to bow and, and lick the boots of these jackbooted booted thugs? Are you are you out of your mind? Ain't happening. So, I don't know. I might not be at Dallas.
2: I think you'll be there. Well, let's get into the issue. Um, the, since we're talking about the, the trade and <clears throat> trade being one of the, the big reasons why these other nations are afraid of a Trump presidency, we have some numbers out today. Ohio lost 112,000 plus jobs due to trade with the TPP countries. Um, this from cleveland.com. The uh, TPP is the Trade Partnership. Uh, what does the TPP stand for? Trade. Trans-Pacific tra- Partnership. Trans-Pacific Partnership. There you go. So TPP Ohio is lost a trans. Uh, 112,000 plus jobs in 2015 resulting from a United States trade deficit with other countries right. that are part of the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, according to analysis by the Economic Policy Institute. That places Ohio sixth in terms of percentage of jobs lost to Uh, trade with TPP countries among the 50 states and the District of Columbia, ranked in the report released Tuesday by the liberal Washington, D.C.-based think tank. The lost jobs represent nearly 2.2% of employment in Ohio, according to the analysis. The total number of lost jobs include those directly and indirectly impacted by the trade deficit (laughs) with TPP countries.
0: Well, oh, where's Trump stand on this? It, it, Trump said he'd negotiate a better deal. I, I think he said that. I don't believe that he he would. Uh, um Outright uh, dismiss any type of trade deal, but he said he'd make a better deal. But but the, the fact is, it's not about trade is or it's not about tariffs as much as it is about control, and that's about control of the goods and and the, about this establishment of a one world uh, government, one world uh, financial system, and that's what it's really all about. It's that globalist environment system. It's not necessarily. And, and that's just what the, look, that's what the, uh, uh, borders are, lack of borders. It's because of North American Union, because that's what they need. They need to, to blend this region into one, one, one sort of union, as they do. And, and make this a globalist, just one big tower of, of Babel, and we're, and, and, and that's what, that's what they're headed for. And that's what they're doing. So, you know, through T, through the TPP, this is exactly what they're trying to do. And what they will do if they accomplish this. And why was the Gang of Eight in the Congress so quick to, to hand over the, uh, 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 what is uh it the uh TA uh uh T- TPA trade promotion authority right, right to uh to the executive branch why 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 do they see the authority uh it would be like you'd <clears throat> be like just the average person having having authority and saying ah, no, i here I'll just give it to give it to uh, you know the guy over there basically um, well, it's because, it's because they are all on, they're all on the take in some way, shape, or form. They're all part of this. And, and, you know, the, the spokespeople, the, the limbos, and, and now, now I believe and even the backs who go to CPAC and to sing the praises of the established Republic, Republicans. I'll call them out, <clears throat> just like I see them. They're on the, uh, on the other side as well. And, uh, now, uh, I, the only thing I would say is I'd be very, very careful, very careful with with Donald Trump, because you know, look, I want to believe he's 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 a, he's a he'll shake things up, and I do think he will, but to to you know to what end, to what extent, we have to be intellectually questioning this. We have to intellectually intellectually question this now. I, I, you know, anytime a country's in trouble, they will go back and, and they'll 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 find somebody who's. A, a political savior, and that political savior then has a honeymoon period, of course, as it's discussed in the in the political world, where the, the, they could do no wrong. And, and just imagine, I mean, look at the damage Obama did. Now, could Trump do more damage? I, I, I don't know, uh, uh, judging by what he's saying, no. However, could that change? And I can't remember, what was I talking to this weekend? Uh, yeah, about the spirit of the Antichrist. Huh. Senior moment, I guess. But, you know, I don't talk, I didn't talk to that many people. it was JD, I don't know. I think it was JD. You know, talking about how the spirit of the Antichrist could, could, uh, could come into a person and i'm not talking about trump i'm not i'm no no Or or anyone specifically i'm just talking about the, the the ground seems fertile for a lot of weeds and a lot of shoot ups to, to 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 be in you know, a lot of things to shoot up out of the ground pretty interesting um just think about it okay i mean th- think about this not that we would trust rubio or cruz or anyone else any more i certainly wouldn't less i mean cruz uh, cruz doesn't isn't even qualified nor is a rubio but certainly I wouldn't, and Cruz, the Goldman Sachs ties with his wife and the CFR ties, and mm-hmm. we all know that. We, we don't, you don't need a lecture on that, but but I'm just very concerned about the environment in which we live, not any one person, but just the environment, and the environment as it relates to the people out there as well, and you you folks and the people in Cleveland and the people in wherever, whatever city you're at, just think, how quickly this could go up in flames, and when I say go up in flames, I'm talking about either through racial riots or, or people not being able to get food, disruptions in supply lines. I mean, what's going to be the spark that's going to set this all off? We could, we we certainly could speculate about this all day long, but I do believe that the powers that have been installed in this country have set it up where they've they've laid out this dry timber. There's dry grass all over the ground, everywhere, all across the world, and I told this, and I said this three years ago, and I said this on Friday or Thursday, <coughs> whenever I was on Infowars. That <clears throat> this has been the plan all along. The plan all along has been to to create this uh, this environment for chaos and for uh, uh, racial and uh, economic uh, chaos in this country, in America. Now it will, it, it could very well start in Europe, in the UK. Uh, it could start in the European Union, but it's certainly going to find its way here very quickly. And could the, the Republican convention or Democratic convention, could it, could we see a replay of 68? Study that. Study that. We could very well see a replay. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's just, that's my two cents. And you don't have to, I mean, look,
1: it's
0: coming. Peter Levenda will be our guest at 8 o'clock or after the uh, top of the hour break and I can't wait for him because he's got a lot of information about the about, about the counterculture of Laurel Canyon about Hitler uh, and about how we are today fighting a global jihad because of, of Hitler the Nazis and the weaponization of Islam and among other things and of course he's going to be talking about his book Sinister's Forces Unholy Alliance Lines. he's got 12 of them I'm not going to name them all so it's going to be kind of cool and um
2: yeah, I'm uh, just waiting for that. No, we'll get a uh, great insight as to uh, his take. I mean, he's she got go an awesome amount of material here that covers so much of you know things that we've talked about on the show with guests, and and things that you've looked into yourself with the uh, Nazi connection to the occult and the globalism uh, aspect, uh. and even the uh, and this the Hitler legacy book that I was skimming through before the show. This talks about the the problem with the uh, immigration and flooding the the Western nations with with immigrants yeah, in order to foam it right. that uh, that some of the division and the chaos that we're seeing in our culture today that stems directly from the actual um, destabilization of the Middle East.
0: Well, and, and that's okay. Perhaps that you know that we might start there because. Or get get a hit in on that, too, because um, in the Hitler legacy, it it does talk about uh, where we are today. But remind me, folks, uh, the third row in the center, the red sweater, yeah, you with a red sweater, remind me to ask about Indonesia and Hitler and Sabud, okay? Talk to our studio audience. Sabud. Sabud, Indonesia. He he deals with that? Yeah, well, the fact that Hitler went into Indonesia and... uh, uh, died in indonesia that's 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 kind of that's postulating uh, that's postulate or you know that's his that's a working theory in here it's mentioned um and i believe that based on his research only because i followed his research and gotta tell you i i didn't find any holes in it so all right yeah and um you yeah, i just uh it's it's amazing what you can learn uh You know, and it amazes me, it amazes me how many people get closed off mentally. You know what, what I just absolutely amazes me is when somebody says, well, you're trying to sell books. No, 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 we're not. Or, you know, books, uh, you don't need, you don't need any. The only thing you need, the only thing you need is the Word of God. Now, I, I agree to some extent, okay, really. If, if you have one book to pick from, you, you pick the Bible, obviously. But not to use the intellectual gifts that God gave you. Now I'm, I'm, I'm actually responding to an email that I got just now saying, you know, you, you, you don't need to bring people on to talk about this. You just need to worship. Okay. So what well, we, we cannot walk and chew gum at the same time, or at least you can't, right? No doctors? That's right. No dentists, no nurses, no police, no firemen. You know, we don't need to do anything. Just read the word of God. The hell with the intellect that we got that we got from God. Don't use your intellect. Let's just be a rock. If you can do that, you know what? But, but, but in all seriousness, seriousness, if you can just if you've got the financial capability. To, to just to, to do nothing but sing praises to God, then, then God bless you. Then, then you're fortunate. And, and you should do that. But some people have to work for a living. Other people want to help others with spreading the word. And part and parcel to that is also learning about history, so we don't repeat the same mistakes again. So don't tell me that all I've got to do is sit here and talk about the word of God. We do talk about the word of God, and we should talk about the word of God. But to do, but but not, but but for example, to to not get into our historical roots that tells us where we are. Are you out of your mind? Then, Then you know what? Then just go away. Go away. Don't send me emails to the studio and use this electronic equipment are you out of your mind Uh, yeah Eric Eric is over there he's he's the one sending me the emails too you know look I'm serious Joe am I wrong I mean tell me if I'm wrong
2: on what you weren't listening I was listening to you we, uh... Uh,
0: okay, look, we can we can pray to God, praise God, and, and live our lives. I mean, people say, well, we're not of the world. Well, we're certainly in the world, right? Mm-hmm. So does that mean that, I mean, what does that mean when people say that? Uh, the, the, uh, before, before you send me emails, think twice.
2: The scripture says at the same time it tells us, you know, we are in the world, not of the world. We're not supposed to conform to the world and its belief systems, ideas, and, and ways, but we are to, uh, conform to, you know, the Lord and His word. At the same time, we're not to be ignorant of the devil's devices.
0: Right, right. But, but look, I can, I can certainly, I can, I can pick up a book and the Bible, and I can, I can worship, I can, I can spread the word, I can do all this. I can do it, I can do it. And I don't need some, some rumdum out there telling me, well, you shouldn't do it. Okay. Get your own show. Do something for you. You know what? Do something that, that you believe in. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just frustrated. Just, I'm just frustrated because what a bunch of wimpy Christians. What a bunch of wusses. If you're going to sit there on your couch with your thumb up your butt and say, you know what? I'm not of the world. Okay. What the hell does that mean? I, 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 again, don't send me emails. I know what it means. That was a rhetorical question, but think about it. God put us here for a reason. God put you there for a reason. It wasn't to sit down, sit on your couch with a, you know, sit on your hands God put us in this world for a reason and if you don't believe that then then I'm sorry I don't know what to tell you we are here to play our positions and we are are here to, to spread the word we are here to save souls we are here to work work our position play our position work our plans are we not? Don't tell me to calm down. Don't tell me me to lower my voice. Don't tell me not to to do this. I'll do what I want to do. I'll do what I think is best for every listener out there and people who I don't even know yet who come to me and say, Hey, you know, what about this? What about that? I'm tr- we're trying. We, 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 and Eric too. All of us in the vast studio audience, which is non-existent. So now some emails saying, do you really have an audience? Okay. We are trying to, 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 save as many people as possible. That's our number one objective. Or number two, how do we save those people? Well, we do it through information. We do it through, we do it through, uh, uh through spreading the word, but we also do it through knowledge. Because without understanding the mistakes that we could make, then, of course, we'll make the same mistakes over again. Because why? Because nothing is new under the sun. And if you understand the playbook of the enemy, then you understand the playbook, what's going on today. And if you don't understand what's going on today, then you're going to fall into that same trap and make mistakes. And, of course, then you're going to go. It's just a vicious circle. Do you follow me? All
2: right. Are you, for the end? Are you waiting for the hour to end? Me? Yeah. I'm just having fun listening to you. Your uh your little
0: Are you're you're punishing me for here. for
2: Friday? You're running around <laughs> in mental circles. I can I can hear it going back and forth. No, it's all right, it's good. Um No, but uh you know what we see in the Middle East I think is a good place to leave off this hour.
1: <laughs> because let's
2: go there. <laughs> we have as we have Mr. Lavenda coming on we can pick up right here because the the nazis in germany in right. the 1930s and 40s yep. and the culture and the economy and the um struggling nation of germany as being echoed as the we have the same conditions here in this country in this in this day and age in this year 2016 um coming off a a, a rough economic um, downturn in 2008 yep yep we have a politic political climate of of uncertainty and of you know uh, everybody seems to be comparing trump to hitler and we have Which, this
0: and and if okay on an intellectual level joe are they wrong I wouldn't compare Trump to Hitler I would compare the environment that we right. find our country in today with a similar type of environment caused by different reasons in uh, pre World War II Germany I would not ever say that Hitler and Trump are, are right. I you know, would not not make the comparison but I certainly would say that the the environment is a very similar between the two countries in the time periods for well, different reasons but the uh, reg-
2: regime changes in the Middle East that have, you know, led to the Arab Spring or, or thrown fire or gasoline on the fire of the unrest that was in the Middle East. Uh, our allies from Saudi Arabia uh, over there to, you know, <sighs> other countries CIA we turn- that we put, it, put up in power. <laughs> We've turned the Middle East into a wasteland. And there has been a mass genocide of, of Christians, of Muslims, and of of people who refuse to be part of of ISIS. And they're taking over Iraq, they're taking over Syria, they're taking over Libya. And it's a direct relation to what the U.S. (laughs) and its policy has done uh, is resulting in the overthrow of the uh, U.S. puppet regimes such as Gaddafi and and Saddam Hussein and, um, and Syria, Assad. I mean, we put these people in power. Of course we did. Now now we're trying to take out Assad. You, you see,
0: uh, and so is Israel. And, and people say, well, you, you don't talk about Israel. Well, Israel is part of the cabal. When I say Israel, I'm talking about the, the not the Jews. I'm talking about the people that are in power in Israel, as well as the French and U.K. and all the people, the, the uh, United Arab Emirates people. They're trying to take out Assad. Why? Well, it's in the interest of Russia
2: and China, but specifically Russia, and their interest oil and balance of power. When we come back from this break, we will be joined by author Peter LaVenda, author of a series of books called Sinister Forces, The Hitler Legacy, Ratline, Unholy Alliance, and more. Stay with us on this Monday edition of the Hagman and Hagman Report.
1: This is the Global Star Radio Network.
0: Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to this segment of the Hagman and Hagman Report. I'm Doug Hagman with Joe Hagman. Together, I like to call us uh, well, the uh, America's premier investigative reporting team, of course, father and son. Before we get into our segment, into our program, I want to mention that... Uh, Portions, of the nice broadcast brought to you by WholeTonesAlive.com. And we mentioned this earlier, and David Terrell, or Michael Terrell, I'm sorry, Michael Terrell, is going to be on our show tomorrow and talking about the, the different frequencies of the of, of Bible and, and, and how different frequencies affect and can affect, for example, your moods. Now, we're not talking about some New Age thing. No, not at all. We're talking about sound biblical principles. Folks, music. One of life's greatest pleasures. It's got tremendous power. It's got the power to bring a tear to the eye or a racing mind. It, music has the power to heal and has been used through the ages to treat depression, to create energy, to induce sleep, to relieve chronic pain, to reduce stress, and even cure diseases. Walter Reed is even using music in, in frequencies. And, and now, musician and author Michael Terrell... Uh, or tarot, has created Whole Tones, the Healing Frequency Music Projects. Did you hear what I said? The Healing Frequency Music Projects. WholeTonesLive.com. Whole Tones, the Healing Music uh, Frequency Music Projects. These frequencies, they were studied in the music of King David and believed to have astounding healing effects. Now you can benefit from the revitalized ancient healing of music therapy simply. By listening daily to this music in the comfort of your own home, in your own car, in your office, which I should do more, according to Eric, the tech, who just uh, said, hey, you just held up a or CD saying, you know, play this, and and maybe you won't be so grouchy. It's a new year, folks, so reward yourself with a gift of healing and transformation. Don't miss this opportunity to get an absolutely free sample of this music so you can begin benefiting right away. Support this broadcast. Support this show. Go to WholeTonesLive.com. And and folks, get a free sample of these soothing, relaxing, revitalizing musical tones. Go to the URL, WholeTonesLive. That's with a W, W W-H-O-L-E, WholeTonesLive.com. Today, for your free sample, that's WholeTonesLive.com, WholeTonesLive.com. Now, it's my distinct honor and pleasure to to bring forth, folks. Buckle up. Make sure your seat backs and tray tables are in full upright and locked position because we are, we, we've got a guest of guests tonight. A guy that I've followed for a long time. Some might say stocked. However, no, I really haven't. But just follow his work. He's got, it's, it's, he's done amazing work. Uh, Peter Lavenda. com. Just like it's not, in fact, just go to our YouTube channel if you're watching us live. It, it's right there. Uh, BTR is right there. Um, uh, our website, HagmanandHagman.com it's linked there. Peter Lovendi he's the author of a number of works on political subjects in particular and I have read the best the the, the best work about the Nazis, the, the unholy alliance the rat line, the Soviet spies, the Nazi priests that... Oh, oh, that's just a myth. Oh, the myth of the Nazi priest. Yeah, there's a book by that title. Now, you know, read the research done by Peter Lavenda. I recommend every one of his books, including his, really, the trilogy, Sinister Forces, book one, two, and three. All different, but interconnected. As well as, of course, his route Soviet Spies, Nazi Priests, and Disappearance of Adolf Hitler, Unholy Alliance, and, of course... Hitler's legacy, or the Hitler legacy, I'm sorry. Uh, welcome, Peter Lavenda. Thanks for joining us tonight.
1: Thank you for having me. Very pleased to be here.
0: Well, I'll tell you what, man. Um, and folks watching live on YouTube, now we don't have live video, but there he is there. That's, uh, that's, where our guests, uh, that's what our guest looks like, and that's a picture of him there, and of course his books. Mr. Lavenda, uh, we were talking at the uh, break. I just got to ask you this. We're seeing the world basically embroiled in a global jihad. And I've talked about this, and I've cited your books before. Let's start here, and then we can move around whichever, which way we want to go. But how did we get here? You wrote about this. You wrote about the weaponization of Islam back in the early 20th century. You wrote about how Islam was used as a political tool, right? A a tool of war. And uh, maybe, let's start there. Um, Can we? Can we do that? sure all right i mean
1: this this is a subject that i think you know more people should should become aware of because it uh, it helps put everything into a certain context because right now we don't have context we just know there's all kinds of strange stuff coming at us uh, from all over the place and we don't know how it started or why or if there's an intelligence behind it that's that's controlling this and uh and creating this world instability that we're all we're all you know so terrified of all the time um this really began at, as you mentioned, towards the beginning of the 20th century. If we look at the state of Islam um, back around 1910 or so, if we look at the Middle East as an example of this, because Islam is spread all over the world, um, I've spent a lot of time living in Muslim countries. Uh, I've lived in Malaysia and Indonesia. Uh, I've traveled a lot uh, through other places. I've been to mosques um, all over the world. And one thing always is reinforced uh, when I start to, to do a little bit of research, a little bit of digging, and that is that until World War I, the Middle East was fractured. I mean, it was broken into all sorts of pieces. Um, the British had Egypt for the most part. The Italians had Libya. Uh, the French had parts of Lebanon and Morocco, Tunisia, uh, Algeria. Uh, the, the foreign powers had pretty much controlled all of the Middle East. They controlled the canal, the Suez Canal. They were in control of the oil fields and all of this. And they kept the the, the different tribes, and at that point we're talking basically tribes in that part of the world except in the cities, they kept the tribes separated uh, at each other's throats. And that wasn't hard to do because they were at each other's throats. There's There's bad blood between a lot of the groups in the Middle East that goes back for hundreds of years. There's all sorts of uh, antagonisms that they have, hostilities toward each other. There was never anything like a united Islamic caliphate after, oh, oh after about uh, the, the 12th or 13th century, um, when everything started to fall apart. And the Ottoman Empire came in, basically took over what they could, became the, the sort of a flag bearer of Islam uh the religion as well as you know middle eastern politics so everything was coming out of constantinople istanbul and the the ottoman empire was also fractured it was in, in danger of falling apart anyway and suddenly you have the guns of august and you have the assassination of archduke ferdinand um in the balkans you have this breakdown of the european um, hegemony everybody's fighting everybody else so you have the British and the French and the Russians basically united against the Germans and the Italians and to a certain extent the Turks, because what the Germans did, uh, they went to Turkey, they went to the, to the head of the, uh, of the Ottoman Empire and said, help us in our fight against the British and the French and the Russians, and we will support you and we will restore your empire that's been decimated by these other powers. Um, what happened next is critical Politics is politics, real politics is real politics People make alliances all the time They form, they reform uh, nobody's really, Nobody really honors these alliances for any great period of time But there was an archaeologist Or a self-proclaimed archaeologist An amateur archaeologist By the name of Max von Oppenheim And uh, he considered himself to be an expert on Middle Eastern affairs. He lived in Cairo near Al-Azhar University, the famous Cairo University. Uh, he basically had a kind of harem there uh, as well. Uh, he wore a, a fez and a, a tarbush, and he walked around as if he was a real Arab, which of course he was not. In fact, he's from the Oppenheim family. He was, uh, I think, half Jewish. And he becomes the advisor to the Kaiser of Germany at this critical point when World War One is about to start. And he goes to the Kaiser and he says, look, I'm the expert on Middle Eastern affairs. I know how to get the entire Middle East behind you. We can get the oil, we can close the Suez Canal, we can do all these great things, destroy the, the stranglehold the, the French and the British and the Russians have. If we can go and convince the Ottoman Empire, to convince the Caliph and the Wazir, the advisor, um, to declare the first ever in the world Global jihad. And this will be a jihad that would ha- enlist all Muslims everywhere in the world against the, the infidels. Against, in this case, very specifically, the English, the French, and the Russian infidels. Not the German infidels, thank you very much, but the other infidels. And the purpose behind a global jihad was the fact that the European countries had colonies all over the world. And they had colonies in Southeast <coughs> Asia. They had Malaysia. They had Indonesia. Uh, the Dutch had Indonesia at this time. Uh, the British had Malaysia. So these are people who are going to be the enemies in World War One. And what they wanted to do was get the Muslims to rise up everywhere in the world and break the the, the stranglehold of the colonial powers. Um, so the the you know the emperor uh, in Istanbul thought, well, this sounds like a good idea. So he goes and he has his religious leader remember this is the religious leader of all Muslims I mean at least in an honorary capacity because there is only one caliphate at this point and that's in Turkey and they issued the fatwa declaring a global jihad against the western powers against the allies wow okay so this this goes out to everyone okay all Muslims everywhere in the world wherever you're doing drop everything we're going to fight all these evil infidels all these non-believers well, didn't quite work out that way. Because it sounded good on paper, but when you got down on the street level, when you got down to the ground level where the tribes are fighting each other and bickering, they're not paying any attention to what's coming out of Turkey. In the first place, they hate the Turks. Uh, in the second place, they're so divided themselves, they have hostilities going back hundreds of years, pretty much like the Balkans. So you had you know, complete Balkanization of the Middle East, people who hated each other. You had different religious sects and denominations. You had the Sunnis, and you had the Shia, but you had even more uh, fracturizing, fracturizing? is that a word? It works for me. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And, well, you know what I'm saying. So they were breaking apart even underneath those basic Sunni Shia, you know, uh, things that we all know about today, but there were many, many more differences of opinion. You had the Wahhabis, you had the Salafis, you had these extremists. Uh, Muslims in one in one part of the world you had uh, people who were much more moderate in the other then you had the Baathists you know in Iraq you had all these people well the Baathists hadn 't started yet but this is they 're going to come out of this period so everybody's hating everybody else so the Germans thought they had a lock on the Middle East and they didn't you had uh, if anyone has ever seen the movie Lawrence of arabia uh, you 'll know what i'm talking about it's pretty good on some of the details. I recommend going back and seeing it if you haven't seen it because a lot of the names that come up are you know real names in history and it shows you what was going on politically. Uh, So it's useful for that reason. You have the British and the French and they're making quiet deals with Arab leaders on the side. And they're making a deal, of course, with the the Zionist uh, organizations out of Switzerland promising them a homeland in the Middle East. At the same time they're promising Prince Faisal uh, and, and King Abdullah, they're saying all these different stories. They're giving them all these other things they're going to do for them. Uh, you know, support us and we'll do this. Uh, you'll get your country back. You'll get, uh, Arabia back and you'll have Jerusalem and you'll have Damascus. They're making all these promises that they are never going to keep. Nobody knows this yet because the British and the French decide we're going to d- divide up the spoils after the war is over. So you have the famous figure of Lawrence of Arabia, right? And he's uniting the Arab right. tribes to get rid of the Turks and and all this, this stuff. And, and it happens. It works. Alan B. goes into, uh, Damascus, goes into Jerusalem and Damascus. Everything is taken over. The Arabs win their revolt. They're very happy. And, uh, Prince Faisal, played by Alec Guinness in the film, uh, is suddenly, you know, told, actually, it's not going to go quite the way that uh, we promised you. We we're going to do this. We we're going to do that. <laughs> and suddenly Faisal is sitting there thinking, well, at least I have Arabia, right? And they're telling Faisal, eh, not exactly. Now, you have to realize that Faisal was a Hashemite. Faisal's family was in charge of Mecca and Medina, the holy places. Uh, Going back hundreds of years, they had the authority there. This was a revered uh, descendant of the prophet Muhammad. And suddenly they're being told by the British that you're not going to have Arabia. We cut a deal with this other guy. And this other guy was King Saud. And King Saud was a Wahhabi, was a religious fanatic, was a fundamentalist Muslim. But because they cut a better deal with him than they could cut with Faisal, they put him in charge of Arabia. Arabia was never called Saudi Arabia until after World War One, because King Saud named it after himself. Right. Prince Faisal now winds up. Yeah, People yeah, don't know this.
0: Uh, no, P- P- and, and folks, did you just... Please listen, please, get, ladies and gentlemen, listen because important foundational information. If you want to know why we're where we're at, listen to Peter Lavenda, our very special guest, Peter Lavenda, PeterLaVenda.com. dot com. That's linked off of HagmanHagman.com. dot com. Prince Weissel said to uh, Maxwell and Oppenheim, nineteen fifteen. I thank God that the interests of Islam are entirely identical with those of Germany. Just as an FYI, but okay, mm-hmm. you point that oh, out, yeah. you know, out in your book on the. Uh, Chapter 2. But anyway, go, go ahead, sir. Let me interrupt.
1: So they're, 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 they're cutting deals left and right, and the whole focus of this is, well, we want the Suez Canal and we want the oil. Um, so King Saud was a better bet as far as the British were concerned. There's a lot more internecine struggles that went on behind the scenes there. It's very Byzantine. But in the end, Saud wins this this contract, basically. He gets the contract. He gets Arabia for himself, names it after himself. And the reason why you have such a strict regime now in Arabia is because Saud was a Wahhabi, and his family are Wahhabis. And Wahhabism is a very fundamentalist strain of Islam. It is not a moderate strain by any means. Um, and in fact, since I have lived uh, in Muslim countries abroad, so I've interacted with Muslims constantly, their feeling towards Saud and towards the Wahhabis is one of distaste. They really don't like these people. They don't like the Saudis. Uh, They don't like what comes out of Saudi Arabia. They call it Petro-Islam. You have the the Saudis setting up mosques every place all over the world, spending huge amounts of of oil money to do this, and promoting their own brand of Islam, which is Wahhabism. And that does not play very well in Indonesia and Malaysia and uh, other parts of Southeast Asia where you have strong Muslim influence. They don't like this. They they, re, they reject it. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. So the, the, the dust settles. World War I is over. Uh, Faisal is sent off to Damascus. He tries to raise a, a revolt of his own. Uh, he gets destroyed. He gets kicked out. They push him over to Iraq, and they make him the leader of Iraq. So Faisal, who has nothing to do with Iraq, winds up running Iraq. So that didn't last very long either, obviously. While all this is going on, There was no such country as Iraq, or Kuwait, or Saudi Arabia, as we know. All of these countries were created after World War I. And they were created by the British, who basically took this large map of the Middle East, and a ruler and a pencil, and decided they would draw the boundaries. I'm not making this up. You had Lawrence, T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, and a woman, Gertrude Bell, famous archaeologist, famous adventurer, uh, one one of the few Western women who was actually... Revered by the Arab peoples because of her her uh, knowledge and her uh, her bravery and all the rest of that, she set up the Baghdad Museum. She did all sorts of you know positive things in that part of the world. But between Gertrude and uh, T. E. Lawrence, uh, they get together and they decide they're going to create the new the map of the new Middle East. Iraq is created, Kuwait is created, um, Jordan, Lebanon, all these countries, Saudi Arabia. Everything is created with new boundaries that they decided upon. You know, basically in a back room. And the map that we're dealing with today is the result of these, this very misguided approach, which Lawrence later regretted and wrote that he regretted it and said we screwed up in the Middle East really badly, especially where the Kurds were concerned. Uh, so lines were got dr- drawn through all the sort of tribal areas. The French had their section, the British had their section, and of course the state of Israel was being created as well in the middle of all of this. Okay, so we fast forward a little bit. Uh, into the 1920s. And you have Arabs living in what was then Palestine and North Africa, throughout North Africa and the Middle East. And the British and the French have betrayed promises to the Arab revolt. And they've decided they're going to create a Jewish homeland in the Middle East, in Palestine, and it's going to be with Jer- with Jerusalem and all the rest of it in this very you know, central area. The feeling among the people at that time living in the Middle East, among the Palestinians was, wow, this is really true. This is happening. The protocols of the learned elders of Zion is true. There's Europeans, and there's Jewish bankers, and there's all these people conspiring to destroy us, right? It's as if these predictions are now coming true. We know the Protocols of the Elders of Zion was a hoax document produced by Russian Secret Service in an attempt to uh, invalidate uh, the Jewish movements that were taking place there, which were, you know, they were flirting with communism, with socialism, with all of this. Karl Marx was Jewish, etc., etc. So in order to sort of destroy their credibility, they create this hoax document called the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion, which is supposed to be a meeting of a bunch of rabbis in a cemetery, and they decide how they're going to carve up the world. Well... This thing gets promoted in the Middle East as a genuine document, and it is today, still today, regardless of what scholars and academics say. They consider this document to be real, and why? They just point to the situation. Well, look what happened, right? So you have this growing resentment now, and it's starting to boil over. The Europeans have betrayed us, uh, and they're associating it with the Jews now, too. So this whole thing is starting to explode. And you have, in the midst of this chaos, uh, a man called uh, Al Husseini arrives. Al Husseini is very well connected Palestinian. Uh, he has himself declared the Grand Mufti, which is the Lord, the, the highest religious leader in Palestine. Uh, he's the Grand Mufti. He therefore, his word is uh, is, is golden. Um, he didn't really deserve this degree, because he, he never really got a religious degree, but he, through you know machinations, typical sort of Byzantine stuff, he winds up, he's the Grand Mufti. And he basically declares war against the European powers, and war against the Jewish settlers who are coming in, um, and the whole thing starts to explode. You have riots all over Palestine. And as this is going on, Adolf Hitler is coming to power in Nazi Germany. So, by 1933, Hitler is in power. And in 1933-34, the Middle East is in a shambles, particularly the Palestinian area. There are bombings, there are assassinations, there are riots uh, on a constant basis throughout the area. So everything is going really, really badly. And al-Husseini looks at Hitler as the sort of the savior of the situation, just as the Turks did with Germany in World War I. Now al-Husseini is looking at Hitler. And the Nazi party in general, the Nazi ideology as something he could work with because they're as anti-Semitic as he is. Um, Hitler is a strong man, which everybody, you know, in that part of the world reveres the, the idea of the strong macho guy who's going to solve everyone's problems. Uh, he just sort of falls into place. I mean, Al Husseini thinks this is the greatest thing. So he then starts writing letters and making contact with Hitler and a young Adolf Eichmann then one of his uh, first jobs for the SS is that he goes into the Middle East to meet with the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, to meet with al-Husseini, to meet with the the anti-European movements, the anti-English movements there, which are all now becoming religious movements. You know, because the the story of Wahhabism and the story of Salafism is that Islam lost its dominance in the world because they lost their spirit, they lost their morals, they became degenerated, they became materialistic, so they lost their principles. And now the only way for Islam to be strong again is to go back to the old ways, the old principles, renew their faith, renew their their uh, uh, opposition to the infidels and all the rest of it. That's sort of one of the major themes. Um, the West is decadent and all these ideas you have are decadent ideas. We have to go back to the to the way it was in the time of the Prophet. So you have a religious and a political thing starting to mix together, and in the middle of this mix you have Eichmann bringing back news to Heinrich Himmler, saying, we have to work with these people. Himmler likes the idea, and he introduces al-Husseini to Hitler. There's photographs of this. It's a very famous series of meetings. And Hitler realizes, as much as he doesn't like Arabs in general, he thinks they're subhuman, uh, he knows he can work with these guys. And he puts al-Husseini into a villa in Berlin, and al-Husseini starts making radio broadcasts to the Middle East, to the Palestinians, telling them to rise up against the British and against the Allied powers in general. Once again, going back to the same World War I scenario. Except that al-Husseini is one of them. Uh, he's a revered leader in Palestine. They, they, they look up to him. They respect this guy. And so he spends the war years in Berlin making these broadcasts, asking again for a global jihad. The Nazis understood we have to Weaponize this religion because we can turn it into a tool against the uh, the other powers, the British against once again the British and the French and the Russians, the same old the same old enemies. But now you throw the Americans into the mix as well. Well, what happens? Hitler loses the war, but the Nazi party uh, machine does not feel they've actually totally lost anything, particularly not the SS. As far as they're concerned, this struggle will go on as long as it takes. And just because they've lost the war doesn't mean that the fight is over. The Nazis, especially the diehard, the the really ideologues in the SS in particular, they can work with the Arabs, especially those who are fighting against Israel. They can understand we have a common enemy, and what we can do is work together to, to overthrow Israel and to cause the Russians and the Americans to fight each other. This was a major platform, you might say, of the SS after World War II. So a lot of war criminals wound up in the Middle East. We all know about Argentina. We all know about South, uh, South America. What we don't realize is how many actually wound up in Egypt and in other parts of the Middle East. Uh, Nazi scientists wound up in Egypt developing weapons of mass destruction to use against Israel. You had Nazi... Uh, Commandos and terrorism experts, terrorism experts in the sense of creating terror, uh, training Palestinian commandos to go back into Israel and to, to blow things up. Otto Skorzeny, very famous guy, Hitler's favorite commando, huge guy, very tall, very big, uh, never-say-die kind of guy with a tremendous amount of spirit. He manages to escape uh, Allied custody at the end of the war and he winds up in Spain for a while, Franco's Spain. Franco protected a lot of Nazis uh, before, during, and after the war. And then Scorzani starts uh, finding himself in Cairo, setting up commando training schools for Palestinians to go and attack Israel. Um, once again, it's not just a question of guns, it's not just a question of commando tactics, it's also ideology and training. It's anti-Semitism turned into a pure science, a pure political science in a sense. So you have the Palestinians, who feel that they can work with the Nazis because of their shared distaste for Israel. To the Nazis, it's pure anti-Semitism. To the Palestinians, for some it's anti-Semitism, for some it's just anti-Zionism, or they just want the Jews out of out of their homeland. No matter what their religion is, they don't want the Europeans there. It doesn't matter. The Nazis know how to manipulate all sides of this equation. So you have very many famous Nazis setting up shop in Cairo, and converting to Islam, by the way. Suddenly they all have Muslim names, you know, which helps cement their relationship to this this new terrorist network that they're creating, and they're creating it worldwide, not just in Cairo uh, against the Jews, but they're creating it all over North Africa, all over Africa, uh, all over South America, all over Asia. They are creating a kind of Fourth Reich, and they're doing it, with the expertise that they gained fighting in World War
0: II is isn't that amazing? I mean, folks, you talk about the relevance behind what we're seeing now—the history that is so clear to me, to me anyway. Now that you know, I mean, we often say there's nothing new under the sun; the same tactics, but 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 but. Hopefully, I mean, you can see, folks, you can see the um, um, groundwork. That has been laid, uh, to where we're at today. I, I just found the, the, the spread of the Nazi ideology and, um, and the conjoining between Islam and, and the Nazi ideology. I, I thought that was amazing. And, and, in your book was the, I did not know, for example, that, that the SS, or I believe it was the SS, or, um, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the Nazis had a, uh, uh, platoons or brigades or whatever you want to call those of, of, of Muslims and, and and they were pretty pretty feared.
1: Sure, um, there was the, the Waffen SS, uh, the Bosnian Mountain Division, the Hanshar Division. These right. were Muslims uh, who were working for the Nazis and uh, they were being blessed by Al Husseini, the guy from Palestine, the same guy. There's photographs of him blessing the troops. This, these were uh, Muslim Waffen SS divisions who were out there in the field fighting in the Balkans. All
0: right. And, and folks, we're talking with Mr. Peter Lavenda. I should call him Professor Lavenda. Really, uh, PeterLavenda.com. That's L-E-V-E-N-D-A. PeterLavenda.com. It's a, right off of Hagman and Hagman.com. He's been gracious to, uh, so gracious to be with us tonight, uh, laying the foundations for where we are today—the global jihad that we're we're seeing, and of course the what others talk about in terms of uh you know the nazification I, maybe that's not the right word but you know how the, the nazis have advanced in in, in the political uh, environment that we that we see uh today and and how they kind of survived and you know um as you're talking about the nazis g- going to various countries including Egypt and others um rat, the, the rat lines I mean the the support that they had after nineteen forty five was just amazing. Well during the war and after the war it was amazing. But before we get into that, I, I gotta ask you this, okay? Um have you have you seen the and pardon me if we're skipping around too much, but have you seen the recent uh His, History Channel documentaries on Hitler with Bob Bear from the CIA and another couple of guys going out looking for Hitler and in, in casino um in Columbia. I, I think it's Casino Columbia area. Have you, uh, are you are you familiar with that?
1: I'm mm-hmm. familiar with it. I haven't I haven't watched all the episodes, but um, since I did a lot of work in that area myself, I kind of would check it out once in a while and see where they're going. But yeah, they but, were they were down in Argentina, I believe, which is where Argentina. I was, yeah,
0: yeah. I'm sorry. Okay, yeah. Uh, and you, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you had really uh, long before they had ever showed up on the uh, on the scene. You had really investigated the the heck out of this, and I thought it was just amazing. And we're seeing more and more. Information about Hitler come come out, and of course, after the wall came down, then you know, obviously, Hitler didn't die in nineteen forty-five outside the bunker, or at least there's no. Let me rephrase that. As an investigator, I should know better. There's no evidence to support the death of Adolf Hitler in or outside of the bunker, uh, pursuant to the claims of of the Russians or anyone else, or you know, right. pursuant to any claims, right? right? right. So, I, I, the Hitler legacy, which kind of dovetails with what we're talking about. I, I followed your investigation, and I'm, I'm fascinated by it. About what you think, or where your trails led, with respect to Hitler, because I think, man, you, you got to be right. You want Is you is this a good time to talk about, it or do we need to sure. like, talk about something else? Okay, go ahead.
1: We, we can connect I, this because uh, it's all part of a piece of this whole thing. You know, um, the one of the reasons we have to learn what we learned during Watergate, which was follow the money, right? Um, That famous phrase. At the end of World War II, when the Nazis are are dispersing throughout the world, uh, one problem that the Allies had was in trying to locate the gold and all the rest of the stuff the Nazis had stolen. Uh, They had been shipping this stuff out of the country, out of Europe even, uh, as early as 1944 when the handwriting was on the wall, and they knew everything was falling apart. Remember, D-Day was in June. In July of 44, there was the assassination attempt on Adolf Hitler, which almost succeeded. From July 44 until the end of the war, Hitler did not make any public appearances. You just didn't see him. Uh, for the most part, he was hiding. In, he eventually wound up in Berlin at the Berlin bunker and was hiding down there. During this time, the SS was making all sorts of um, arrangements to get their ill-gotten gains away from the Allies as much as possible. A lot of this gold wound up in Swiss bank accounts, where it was really safe. Uh, no, the Swiss were not cooperating with the Allies, no matter how many times you might hear them differently. The Swiss simply did not cooperate with the Allies in this case. And a lot of the gold that wound up in the Swiss banks wound up financing global jihad, wound up financing the, um, the, the, the Palestinian liberation movements uh, in Palestine, as well as liberation movements in Algeria against the French, uh, on and on. So this money was around. It was being sent by submarine in some cases. We know that 40 tons, we know, I mean, it's a documented thing, it's not speculation, 40 tons of Nazi gold wound up leaving Portugal uh, from the Bank of Portugal, where it had been stored, and wound up uh, sailing to Macau. Macau, of course, at that time was a a Portuguese colony in China. Uh, 20 tons of that gold wound up in China, we don't know what happened to it. Another 20 tons of gold wound up in Indonesia. Uh, when we talk about the Nazis and we talk about Hitler and we talk about global jihad and all the rest of it, quite often people forget or ignore or are not aware of the role Indonesia plays in all of this. Indonesia is the world's largest, most populous Muslim country. And the population in Indonesia is equivalent to adding together Egypt, Iraq, Iran, and most of the Middle East altogether. We're talking about over 250 million people living in Indonesia. Um, when I was searching the Adolf Hitler story, and it came to me by accident. I was in Indonesia. I was uh, actually studying at Gajamata University in Chogyakarta, in which is their version of Harvard, and I was taking courses there uh, to get my MA degree, and I heard these stories. People were telling me, oh, did you hear about Hitler escaping to Indonesia? <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. Um, this was around 2007 or so when I'm starting to hear this story. And I'm saying, well, no, Hitler died in the bunker in April '45." I know I wrote about it in Unholy Alliance. I mean, there's, there's no question in my mind that Hitler died in the bunker, in the Berlin bunker. But they're saying, no, 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 he escaped. He, he escaped, he wound up in Indonesia. And I thought, yeah, right, okay. A little later, uh, somebody that I know uh Dr. Nick Melantoni who's the state archaeologist of Connecticut uh, went to Moscow to look at the skull the Russians claimed was Hitler's skull and he came back and we had a, a discussion about this but of course he became well known for doing a uh, participating in a documentary on this on the History Channel he discovered that skull was not even the skull of a man, it was the skull of a woman uh the wrong age and they did some testing on it, on a particle, a piece of the skull that he brought back with him. And the testing shows they had nothing to do with Adolf Hitler. The the skull the Russians have been saying all these years was the skull of Hitler uh, is not. And when that happened, I sat back and I thought to myself, well, then wait a minute. What forensic evidence does exist that Hitler died in the bunker? Maybe I better look at this Indonesian story a little bit more closely. And then I started seeing documentation... People were showing me uh, papers about this. They were showing me all sorts of strange documents in German that were found, uh, that were in the possession of this weird guy who lived on this remote island in Indonesia, you know, far to the east of Bali. I mean, we're talking remote, remote, very difficult to get to. And I'm putting this together, and I'm thinking, you know, there's something to it. I mean, in this guy's writings, he's referring to Krunoslav Dragonovich which is a mouthful. But Draganovic goes back to what you were saying before. This was the man who created the rat lines. This was a, a, a Croatian priest, a Catholic priest, who tried to save the entire Croatian puppet government, the Ustasi puppet government, that were Nazis, um, tried to save them, to move them out of uh, Croatia where they were going to, uh, about to be arrested got them out through northern Italy, through the monastery route, as we call it now, through a series of churches and convents and whatnot, got them fake papers, and got them on a ship going to Argentina. They were some of the first um, war criminals to have escaped and wound up in Argentina using the monastery route, um, using the rap lines. It's Draganovich who created this, and he created it working hand-in-hand with Allied intelligence. When the war was over, the CIC, the Counterintelligence Corps, had a base in Salzburg, Austria, and he worked with them out of that base. Uh, at first, the Americans wanted to capture Nazis and prosecute them. But by 1946, going into 47, everything changed. They knew they were going to have problems with the Soviet Union, so they were looking for Nazis not to prosecute them, but to hire them and to protect them, to make them work for Allied intelligence. So suddenly, Draganovich, this crazed Nazi monsignor in the Catholic Church, a defender of Nazism, a virulent anti-Semite and anti-communist, suddenly becomes basically a guy working for the CIA. First for American military intelligence, then for the CIA. Now he's moving people out of the country like mad. Uh, uh, Josef Mengele got out this way. Fritz Stangl got out this way. Klaus Barbie, all the big names of the Nazi hierarchy, the most wanted war criminals, got out with this man's assistance, with Draganovic's assistance out of Austria. Um, now I'm looking at some old papers. I'm in Singapore and in Indonesia. I'm looking at some old documents, I mean the originals, not just photocopies. And I'm looking at this guy talking about Draganovic. He has the address Um, uh, where to find him in Rome, where to find him where the the safe house is in Genoa. He's got all of this information. This old guy who died in 1970 in Indonesia, he had all the documentation on the ratlines before anybody knew the ratlines really existed. This was before um, Klaus Barbie had been arrested in the 1980s when suddenly everybody heard about the ratlines and Draganovich, the name Draganovich, became famous. This paperwork dates back to the 1940s. This guy got out of Europe, wound up in Indonesia, the same age as Hitler, the same height as Hitler, with a handlebar mustache and with his blonde wife. And they wind up in Jakarta around 1952. And then from Jakarta, they wind... Jakarta, of course, is the capital of Indonesia. From there, they wind up on this remote, remote island called Sumbawa Basar, And it's in the middle of nowhere. And he winds up there running a clinic, a medical clinic. Now, this freaked me out for another reason. You've read Unholy Alliance, so you know that in 1979, I went to Chile. Uh, I was detained by a a group of Nazis down there at a place called Colonia Dignidad. And Colonia Dignidad, of course, is is rather famous now. It's becoming more famous. People are talking about it. Um, But in those days their claim to fame for the local people was they ran a clinic right so they ran this clinic on on their estate this vast estate they had in the Andes Mountains and these were Nazis these are people who had escaped justice uh, they served as a safe house for people like Walter Rauf Otto Skorzeny Joseph Mengele everybody had passed through Colonial Dignidad at one point uh, it was a beautiful place idyllic in the middle of nowhere and protected by the Chilean government so I had blundered into the place in 79 that's another story but the idea that they had ran a clinic, and now this guy's running a clinic on this island, this kind of weird coincidence started to make me pay attention. And as I started digging and I started digging, I came to the conclusion that whether or not this guy was Hitler, he was somebody. He was some famous war criminal. He was somebody that they were looking for, someone that had to be found. And it led me into the story about Hitler's escape. Uh, the possibility that he did escape. And then I started researching the British uh, files on this, the American files, uh, all the historical statements that have been made, newspaper clippings and all the rest of it. And I came to the conclusion that there's absolutely no way to know for sure that Hitler died in the bunker, that the story we were told was told by the British Secret Service, a guy called Hugh Trevor Roper, uh, a famous historian, who, by the way, didn't speak German, did not have access to the American or the Soviet German prisoners from the bunker, only to the ones the British had. And he had three months, only three months, to come up with a story that Hitler committed suicide in the bunker on April 30th, 1945. He's dead, nothing more to see here. Move along. (laughs) He was given that job. He had three months to do it. And he did it in three months, made a big presentation. We have discovered, you know, to our satisfaction, Hitler died in the bunker. No problem. He's dead. Forget all about it. Don't go looking. Well, yeah, but no. (laughs) (laughs) The the, the eyewitness reports were all contradictory. Okay, Even the British, their own people couldn't agree. And then when you started matching it to what the the prisoners the Americans had, the prisoners the Soviets had, who changed their story completely with every beating and interrogation, and suddenly you realize nobody said anything. I mean, what possible reason would the SS have to lie about Hitler's death, right? Of course they're going to lie about it. They're going <laughs> to lie like crazy. Oh, he took cyanide. Oh, he shot himself. Oh, somebody else shot him. Um, on and on. All these stories came
0: uh, out. Or we heard the gunshot. We did, honest. In we did. Bunker. We heard it. We heard a yeah. gunshot. Yeah. It's
1: World War II. It's Berlin in April 1945. You heard a lot of gunshots. You know, it was constant. It was a rain of bullets going on out there. So, the story was they cremated the bodies. The Soviets came, however, Smaersh, the famous uh, counterintelligence uh, people for Soviet military, they came and they claimed they found the bodies. Well, they found Goebbels and his wife and their six children and their dog. And nice they found touch. those bodies. Nice touch. Then you put it. Yeah. So they touched. They, 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 they got those bodies. Then they claimed they had Hitler and Eva Braun. The problem with that was the first body they came up with was not Hitler. It was Hitler's double. Hitler had two doubles that we know of, because, as I say, he did not uh, appear in public after July 44. But a double would occasionally appear. Somebody kind of looked like Hitler and then disappeared again. So they found a double. They found another double in another town. They didn't really find Hitler, but they found these bodies. The identification that this is Hitler and Eva Braun is made on the basis of dental records, which is pretty funny, because two weeks before the end of the war, Adolf Hitler and Eva Braun decide they have to go to the dentist and get new dentures made. So they go to the dentist. I mean, the war is falling. Everyone's dying. They need new dentures. So they go and they get dentures. But they get two sets each. Two sets of dentures, each one. One set was found in the mouths of these two corpses that they found outside the the Reich's Chancellery in Berlin. They didn't fit. It didn't matter. The Soviets were, were satisfied, oh, this must be Hitler and Eva Braun. But let's go and let's make sure. Let's find the dentist who did that. Well, they couldn't find the dentist, but they did find somebody who worked for the dentist and from memory drew exactly what the dentures should have looked like, right? This guy, you know.
0: So, <laughs> how convenient. Well, how great.
1: convenient. Yeah. And the, yeah, you know, right. the drawings work. They're perfect. Of course, this must be Hitler and Eva. Where's the other set of dentures, right? Right. No one knows. Two sets of dentures, but only one was found. Well, the, the Soviets now take up these bodies. And this is the, the weirdest thing of all. They drive around with these bodies in the back of a truck for like days and days. They'll drive someplace, they'll bury the bodies, a day or so later, come back, dig them up, drive them around again. This is in the Russians' own documents, their own words. Right. You know, this is the Hitler book that they put out a couple of years ago. So they're driving these bodies around like crazy. So they finally decide to bury the bodies once and for all in Magdeburg at the KGB headquarters there. Uh, there's a parking lot, they bury them in the ground, they pave it over, and now there's the new Soviet intelligence headquarters for that part of Germany, uh, East Germany, at Magdeburg. is there and now the bodies are there. Everybody can forget about them. It's done. Okay, go back to Indonesia. Why is this important to story? Because in January of 1970, Our man in Germany, this strange doctor who's not really a doctor, breaks his habit of never leaving the island. He never leaves that remote island. He's paranoid about the Allies. He decides he's going to go, for some reason, to the city of Surabaya on the coast. The story given doesn't make any sense. He has a patient, and the patient is having heart trouble. He wants to take the patient to this hospital in Surabaya. However, there's a note left behind in his belongings that says he has a meeting with somebody at a hotel in Surabaya in January of 1970. We don't know what this is all about. He winds up in Surabaya, a guy who never wanted to leave that island because he's paranoid for security. On the day he arrives in Surabaya, he winds up himself in the hospital. No one knows how he suddenly got sick. The next day he dies. I'm working on the assumption he was summoned to Surabaya by someone for some on some pretense and murdered, quite frankly, killed in Surabaya. Whether it was Mossad doing this because they knew who this guy was, um, who knows. But he right. was called up there and he dies. I mean, he was fine as long as he stayed on his island. He was right. If he left the island, he would be killed. He left the island. He died. That's in January mm-hmm. of 1970. By April of 1970, Yuri Andropov, now head of the KGB, before he becomes Premier of the Soviet Union, Antropov is head of the KGB. In April of 70, he gives the order to his people, go to Magdeburg, dig up the bodies of Hitler and Eva Braun, and cremate them again, and sprinkle the ashes on the river. Shortly after word comes to Russia that this guy has been murdered in Indonesia, suddenly the KGB is in a hurry to destroy this evidence, that everybody forgot even existed, right? Khrushchev right. says, "Go and dig up these bodies. Actually, tear up the parking lot, the paved parking lot. Dig down, get these bodies, which have now been decomposed to the point where it's disgusting. And they're going to take them and take them out to a place and burn them, cremate them again, but do it right this time, you know. And then you know, scatter the ashes. That's in April of 1970. So what is going on? What is all this? It's a very suggestive story." And as I started researching more and more, it got more and more crazy. It involved gold. It involved what's something called Sukarno's Revolutionary Fund. It was uh, gold being shipped around to support a, cor- a sort of um, competitor to the IMF and to the uh, World Bank that was going to be run by Sukarno and his non-aligned nations, You know, neither the communists nor the capitalists. He was going to create this sort of uh, operation that they wouldn't have to rely upon the IMF. All of this politics is going on all around the same time, you know. So this is, you know, Sukarno's overthrown in '65. The year of living dangerously. Suharto comes in. He's trying to get a hold of the Revolutionary Fund. All of this is going on. But in the middle of all of this, in '65, that famous year, when um, they made a movie about that too, uh, in which you know Sukarno was basically overthrown because they people believed the generals believed he was working with the Chinese communists. Uh, to take over the country and turn it into a communist state during that same year, our guy in Germany, this strange Austrian guy with the handlebar mustache, goes to Bali, the famous island of Bali, a beautiful resort island, and spends time there in Bali, uh, coming back and reporting how great everything was and how beautiful it was and He was glad to find to meet some of his old comrades well. Mm-hmm. In 1965, in Bali, uh, records coming out of that part of the world say that tens of thousands of people were murdered during that massive purge that took place in 1965, the anti communist purge. Oh, tens yeah. of thousands, estimates go as high as 100 or 200,000 people, were murdered on the island of Bali alone. And that's the time he decides he's going to go to Bali and hang out. Right? So the connection between this man, whoever he was, and the Indonesians, many Indonesians, swear this was Hitler. The connection between this guy and the destruction of, of communists on the island of Bali and his access to the gold that was supposed to be used for the revolutionary fund, Nazi gold, all of this comes together to suggest that we may be talking about about Hitler. And if not Hitler, then somebody who had, had Hitler's uh, contacts had Hitler's access to funds, and was just as ideologically fanatic as Hitler was, and who had the same mustache, quite frankly.
0: Um, and, and, and he also had, um, it, it, this being the same person in, the, in Indonesia, in, and you mentioned his address book, um, uh, yeah. his, um, oh goodness, the uh, East uh, f- f- uh, Flyer, um, uh, Rudel. Rudel.
1: Oh, oh yeah, Rudel. Hans Ulrich Rudel, yes.
0: Right, okay. So, I mean, motive means opportunity, uh, methods, everything, uh, basically to get to where he needed to go. And then, of course, and I found this fascinating, too, folks, if you think about this, 1965, Bali. Uh, think about what happened there, the, the the purge of the communists. And and then, of course, the, the strange, as you point out, the strange uh, situation in 1970 with surrounding this man's death. And you identify this man in your book, and again, his book, uh, in this particular book, The Hitler Legacy, you identify him by name and also you show a picture of his grave, gravesite, too, right? I yeah. mean, uh, yeah.
1: Well, yeah, I went to visit the grave um, because I wanted to see it for myself. Uh, he was buried right there in Surabaya. You know, Muslim tradition is you bury a body within 24 hours. They weren't going to ship him back to his island, so they buried him there in Surabaya. And what is bizarre about his gravestone is that it was missing the dates. So you have you have the name. His name allegedly was Georg Anton Perch. That's C H. and they had him there as doctor because he was posing as a medical doctor. If he wasn't a doctor, so he had his name, Doctor Georg Anton Perch, and then birth date blank, right. even the date of death blank. Nobody put in the dates. Now there's not a single gravestone in that cemetery, and it's a big cemetery. And I walked it. There's no gravestones without dates on them. That's just not the tradition. And this was a traditional Muslim gravestone. The dates are missing. That is, that's, that's spooky. That's just, that's not done. That's incredible. They didn't, but are, okay. Are, are, are we to believe? What, he was,
0: but are, but are we to believe? You, you said there was a Muslim cemetery. Are we to believe that this man became a Muslim?
1: Oh, he did. He so converted who? to Islam. Uh, his wife, This nice, blonde Austrian lady, after a while, decided she had had enough of Indonesia or Sumbawa or whatever. (laughs) And in 1964, uh, I believe it was in 64, she leaves the country forever. She goes back to Europe and disappears, quite frankly, haven't been able to find her since. But about a a year later or so, around the time of the Bali massacre, he marries a local uh, Indonesian woman, uh, who is, who is Muslim. Now, Islamic law says an Islamic, a Muslim man can marry anyone. She doesn't have to be Muslim as long as the children are brought up Muslim. But a Muslim woman, nope. yes. C- can you hold that thought? Well, we were at sure. the top, top of the hour break. And this wow. would be
2: a great place to break and pick up on the other side. Hitler, uh, escaping to Indonesia and becoming. Muslim. Yeah. I'm telling you, you've got to read this book, uh, yeah. The Hitler Legacy. Fantastic uh,
0: documentation.
2: We'll be right back, folks, on this Monday edition of the Hagman and Hagman Report with our very special guest, author Peter LaVenda, his series of books, Sinister Forces, as well as Ratline, um, Unholy Alliance. And The Hitler Legacy, which we're talking about right now. Oh, It's very informative Amazing. and a different perspective than what the mainstream historians and people have told us. So stay with us. We'll be right back with Peter Lavenda.
1: This is the Global Star Radio Network.
2: Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to our third and final hour of this Monday edition of the Hagman and Hagman Report. We have our special guest with us, Mr. Peter Lavenda, author of several books, the series Sinister well, Forces. Wow, to be exact, a dozen. Count them. A dozen? A dozen. Wow. From Sinister Forces to Unholy Alliance to Ratline, um, these books are, are just fantastic. And we left off in the hour number two with Hitler, uh, possibly being in Indonesia and converting to Islam
0: but making a brief stop in Bali just during the purge of the communists there in 1964 of course and then maybe meeting someone because well maybe his cousin, wife girlfriend, whatever Ava had to go elsewhere for other reasons go ahead and pick up where you left off sir
1: well we were talking about Islamic marriage situation, and yes. for a Muslim woman, uh, she must only marry a Muslim man. A Muslim man can marry any kind of of a religious person, but a woman, if she's a Muslim, must marry a Muslim man. So since they were going to get married, our Dr. Puck then converted to Islam um, and became a Muslim, at least nominally, in order to go through this marriage ceremony. And uh he got married and was shortly thereafter, within a couple of years, he was in Surabaya on a slab in the ward. He was dead. Um and then she started his wife, his second wife, his Muslim wife, started to kind of not talk to people and disappear. And when I tried to um to look up what was going on with her and try to find her, I, I located her in a different part of Indonesia and uh the place where she was where I was told she was located it was basically a compound. I mean, there was no way for me to to just walk up and knock on the door. And, and um, you've so. had your
0: you had your fill of compounds by this time, okay. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Another compound I didn't need. Um so I don't know. I mean that that part of the story. She had given interviews to a couple of people back in the eighties about this and then pretty much kind of got quiet and disappeared. So um as far as she is concerned, the testimony she gave, um he told her, this doctor, this Austrian doctor, told her he was Hitler. I mean, she didn't know very much about World War II. She didn't know very much about Hitler. She kind of knew the name. Um, but he said, yeah, I'm Hitler. You're looking at him, and told her this. And then she re- reported it to someone else, and eventually it became a story. But in the 1980s, a Indonesian doctor followed up this story. And he started collecting information because he had met this guy accidentally back in 1960, uh, when he was going onto that remote island as part of uh, as part of a, a medical op- medical uh, project, and found him and talked to him and thought he was very strange. Didn't seem to be a doctor. Didn't seem to have a medical knowledge really. And then uh, he died, and he started to put the pieces together, and he came to the conclusion this could have been Hitler based on a number of things. So. Um, then the German government were sending people to talk to him. They, they offered him millions of dollars for the documents that were in his possession, uh, that the doctor had, had in his possession. That diary I mentioned, uh, and some of the other documentation that he refused, uh, he refused to, to sell them apart with them. And it was only later, a couple of years ago, that I started to actually see them for myself. Yeah,
0: um, you saw you saw this memorabilia. Yes. Well, I don't know if I'd call it memorabilia, but folks, uh, I mean, think about this. We have with us a guy that, now, now see, w- w- 30 years as an investigator. Why can't I get a case like this, all right? It's because yeah, I didn't yeah. stick my nose into this, all right, <laughs> like Mr. Lavenda did. So uh, Mr. Lavenda actually saw the documents that he's referencing right now, or at least yep. most of them. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, I did. I-, I saw them. I mean, this is what happened. I published Ratline which was my, my story about, you know, my discovery of this guy in Indonesia and all the material that I come up with to that point. And it was because of Ratline that the person who owns the documents now got in touch with me and said, listen, we have to talk. Uh, so I went out to Singapore, uh, in this case, and sat down, and I saw I saw the passports, I saw the, the actual documents. Uh, I put together, you know, what was going on, the chronology, the timeline, you know, there's a very good chance that the person who was in Indonesia, if he wasn't Hitler, he was um, he was somebody that they would have wanted as a war criminal, let's put it this way. So since Redline got published, I got contacted by these guys with documents, and then I got contacted by people around the world um, who had some knowledge of who this guy was and people who were friends of the family and all the rest of it and the mysterious things that happened and how they dropped out of sight and... So there's a, there's a greater mystery that's been unfolding in the years since I published Ratline and Hitler Legacy, and it's still unfolding. I'm still getting information, very solid information from people, um, who were there, who knew who these people were, or who had some, they have some access to it. And some, uh, one person in particular went through, uh, my two books, Ratline and Hitler Legacy, and noticed something I didn't. That one of the strange notations from that notebook, That I write about in Ratline is actually referenced in Hitler Legacy in a different context entirely. And when I, when this, this person told me this, who doesn't want their name mentioned, I put together the, looked at the two things and I thought, oh my goodness, the guy who went to Indonesia, this Austrian and his wife actually had access to the, the famous Sukarno Revolutionary Fund. And we're talking millions upon millions of dollars worth of gold. So, they had the bank account. I mean, they, they they had access to the Nazi gold. And who would have access to that gold unless they were some, someone extremely trusted by the Nazi hierarchy, somebody who had carte blanche, someone who could be trusted to have access to that kind of, of money. So yeah. more and more pieces are, are falling into place. And uh, against the backdrop of all of this, there's another weaponization of Islam taking place, and that's during the Cold War. And now we're, we're fighting the Soviet Union. It's the 1950s. You know, when these people wind up in Indonesia, at the same time, we had the CIA in Germany trying to figure out how can we set up a front within the Soviet Union to help topple that regime. And the only thing they could think of was, well, let's look at Central Asia, which is under the Soviet sphere of influence, um, and realize that we're talking about Muslims. Is there some way, and this is coming from the top, this was coming from Eisenhower, president at the time, who said, why can't we convince the Muslims to have a holy war against the atheistic communists? Can we do something to get these guys together and rise up against the Soviets? And here we are making the same mistake the third time in the row, we weaponize Islam, and that's what we do, we send the CIA, they open up this operation in Germany, they build a mosque in Munich, uh, which is going to be used now by the Muslim Brotherhood and everybody else, right? And we're forcing people who despise each other, once again, the Central Asians, all the various Central Asian Muslim communities who never get along. They don't speak the same language. They don't have the same traditions. All they have in common is the Quran, and that's about it. And now we're forcing them into a kind of military union against the Soviets in the name of Islam and then we go and do the same thing the Nazis tried to do with no real result the first two times the Germans I should say the first two times and now we're going in the 1950s I mean the blood is barely dried from World War II and now we're going to go in and do the same thing and this again is part of the of the documentation uh, the guy who was running the Muslim Brotherhood at the time uh, is, is at a meeting attended by President Eisenhower you know we're all good friends etc cetera. Et cetera. Uh, and there's this, you know, all these intrigues going on in Eastern Europe and Central Europe and in Germany to get the, the Muslims to work together, and the Muslim Brotherhood, of course, gets in the middle of all of this, and then we basically create, we create the Taliban, you know, we create all these groups to go in after the, the Soviets in the name of religion, in the name
0: hey, of Islam. is a big new, It is a big new, We, I, I got an idea, it's a, it's a brand new idea. Yeah, well, let's get let's get the Muslims and let's let's you know arm them yeah. And, and yeah, yeah that's,
1: that'll work. That'll work. That's what, could po- what could
0: What <laughs> could possibly go wrong? <laughs> exactly. You know, and and see, folks, are are you getting it now? Why history is so important? I mean, to me anyway. And I'm I'm not trying to talk down to anyone. I'm just really trying to reinforce a point that. Can, can you hear why this is so important? Because it it, it happened. I, I mean, again, w- what could possibly go wrong? Anyone who studies history would know. I mean, oh, see, Mr. Lavenda could be uh, Secretary of State and just ask him. And he'd say, yeah, you kidding me? Yeah. No, nah, ain't going to happen. Yeah, uh, i I got to ask you this because I, I know right before the show we, we touched on this and you kind of said, "Nah, no. Nah, nah. But let me ask you this. I'm going to kind of twist your arm a little bit. I've been doing a lot of research on, on Obama and his connections, but more importantly, the uh, OSS to CIA, CIA to Obama through Kennedy and and Nixon, and kind of this convoluted investigation I've been doing. And and and, and I told you, uh, so looking at Saboud. Okay, now you you had mentioned this uh, this perk, this doctor, er, oh, the O oh, with the umlaut. P-O-C-H yeah. in Indonesia during the Saharto um, Sukarno uh, de- deposition or er, deposition yeah. deposing and such yeah. now uh, uh, Sabud played a role in that politically not religiously but the political arm uh, did some somewhat sort of kind of you don't you still don't think um, I, mean, I mean folks in case you don't know what I'm talking about because uh, uh, Sabud uh, uh, to me um and and, and Mr. Lovenda, this is just my view based on my research. I do believe uh Sabud is an organization that was in, in, influenced and, and infiltrated by uh what is now the CIA and then assets before that, and of course there was some shenanigans you know being played in Indonesia, which I was why I bring up this point. Could Sabud have been even possibly um played a part into the Nazi slash Sakarno Saharto Situation. I'll just let you say yes or no, or shut well, I mean, up, Doug. You know,
1: <laughs> no. you have, you have to understand Indonesia. Indonesia is a crazy place, man. Okay, in, in Indonesia, anything is possible, and strange things happen there. Um, it's not monolithic. Um, different areas of Indonesia do things differently. You have, um, you have. I, I wrote a book called Tantric Temples. I, I, I crawled all over. Um, Hindu and Buddhist temples in Indonesia, most of them, I mean, covered with vegetation and all the rest of it. But people are still burning incense there. You know, this is an Islamic country. This is a Muslim country, where it's okay to go to a, a an old, ancient, you know, I'm, I'm talking more than a thousand years old, ancient Buddhist or Hindu temple, you know, and burn incense in front of a. A Linga and Yoni statue, which I won't go into details for your more nervous listeners, but it's, let's put it this way, it's a fertility symbol. And they can go Mm -hmm. and like, you know, incense sticks there and all the rest of it and put flowers there and not run into problems with their Muslim associates, their their family and friends. Indonesia is a different thing. They're not so polarized. So you can be a, a Muslim and still believe in ghosts and spirits and and going to cemeteries and having sex in a cemetery in the middle of the night with a complete stranger in order to get good luck in the future. This stuff goes on. Okay, So when you talk about Subud, Subud is a mystical movement that came out of Indonesia, which had Indonesian leaders. And in Indonesia, if you become even moderately powerful, you're going to have political connections. You may have connections to some elements of the police or the army. That's just the way it is. It's all very local. So if you're prominent in your village, you're going to be prominent, not just in terms of a religious thing, but maybe in terms of business, maybe in terms of politics. So uh-huh. these things get mixed together a lot in a big pot. So um, there's a lot of spillover. The leadership of Subud, yeah, okay, because they're running an organization which is international, they're going to be very careful about political associations. They're going to be very aware of them, um, but they're going to be very careful to distance themselves not wanting to be identified with one particular political party or another because that would damage their brand, let's put it that way. Would there be CIA it. infiltration of Subud? You bet. Why not? Of course there would be. They're an international organization. It's prime for CIA to have somebody embedded inside. And not just CIA, I imagine the Chinese do and the Soviets do and everyone else. Oh yeah. Because it has that kind of reach and it does have a lot of very sort of influential <laughs> followers, people who are you know, uh, better educated, sort of elite, uh, um, on and on like that. I mean, it is a very strange little operation when you compare it to other religions and you know mystical movements around the world. It's been around for a very long time. And there's this, you know, there's a lot of crossover. So there's going to be, as there was with the Catholic Church, you know, as, I mean, the Church was one of the major defenders of the rap lines and getting the war criminals out of Europe. You know, we think of the Catholic Church, you know, as the Church, it's a religious institution, But that's for the people like us down below here we look up and we just see the church and we think that's all it is you get a little bit deeper inside the church you realize it's a banking operation it's a military operation it's a political operation so you know they had a vested interest in moving Nazi war criminals into South America because the Nazi war criminals were anti-communist the Catholic Church was anti-communist they made common cause just like the Nazis and the Palestinian liberation people make common cause because they were both against Israel. As far as the Church was concerned, eh, if you're against Israel, no big deal. You know, they don't have a dog in that race, really. They don't, they don't much care. At least they didn't in the 1940s and 1950s. But you had to be anti-communist. So when you're talking about Subud, for Subud to survive, it had to survive under Suharto, who was one of the most repressive dictators Indonesia has ever known. So he overthrew Sukarno, basically on a trumped-up charge. His generals got together, took over the country, uh, massacred millions of people throughout Indonesia. They're still trying to count the bodies today. Okay, they coming did. up, Suharto. Right. Did. So right. we're still coming up with you know with documentaries based on this interviews with survivors. I've met survivors of the of the Suharto purges. I've talked to them. I, I know the horrors they went through. People being imprisoned for no reason. Um, being in prison for 20, 30 years, you know. So, for Subud to survive under those circumstances, they had to play ball with Suharto to some extent. And playing ball with Suharto meant playing ball with CIA. There's no way out. I'll buy that. Okay. There's no way out. Yeah. CIA was, CIA was, it was vested in getting rid of Sukarno since the 1950s. (laughs) Okay. They were trying to run operations against Sukarno in the 1950s. I mean, CIA hated him. They wanted him out no matter what. And so their involvement in the year of living dangerously in 1965 is documented. We know this went on. There's no doubt in anyone's mind.
0: Okay. The Catholic Church
1: was heavily invested in having Suharto take over and getting rid of Sukarno, and so was the CIA. Very heavily invested. And you know who was on the beach in the Philippines getting ready to invade Indonesia (laughs) in the 1950s? You're not going to believe this.
0: This oh, is Leonard oh, oh. Oswald. Uh, I, I, I know, I know. I'm so <laughs> you know. tickled. I, I am so tickled. Get the folks. I see. I got the upper hand because, well, I, I've got in front of me a copy of the Hitler Legacy. I bet you want one too, don't you? You see, <laughs> oh, folks, you, I, I'm serious about this. Um, uh, the Hitler Legacy. Go to um, Amazon or, or your bookstore and get this book. It's got so much information in it—rich information. Did you hear what Peter Lavenda just said? See, I really think all all elementary schools should have this, teach this in history class. I really do. Um, that's just my view. So, okay, Lee Harvey Oswald is in the Hitler legacy. Go figure. Okay, go continue, sir.
1: Well, at that time, Lee Harvey Oswald was in the Marines. And the CIA was calling up an entire you know military operation. They were going to invade Indonesia in the 1950s. They were getting ready to do that. And there was a flyer sort of shades of Francis Gary Powers, there was a, a, a pilot who crashed uh, in Indonesia and kind of exposed the operation a little bit too soon. But they were ready to go, and Oswald was part of that unit. He was going to be actually in Indonesia invading to get rid of Sukarno. Now, an interesting story is we have his notebooks from later when he got out of the Marines and he came back from Russia, and we find out that he's he's made notations about Sukarno, and thinking that Sukarno really wasn't a communist, he was more of an opportunist, which is exactly the CIA's point of view. They understood this. you know. They understood he was playing both sides against the middle, but they wanted somebody who was going to be more solidly on their side, somebody they could rely upon 100%, and that was going to be Suharto. Sukarno was playing both ends against the middle. He was an opportunist. The, the CIA's own people, going back to to the, the beginning of the CIA, really, to the late 1940s, early 1950s, came up with that same... Analysis that Sukarno is not a communist. He's he wasn't a Nazi either. I mean he made speeches Supporting Japan's invasion and supporting Hitler during World War two. So how suddenly does he become a communist, right? But anyway, they saw him as this opportunist and they didn't trust him They wanted to get rid of him and Oswald knew this intimately and wrote about it in his own works and talked about it among friends uh, that he had in uh, in New Orleans and in Texas, saying, "Oh no, you know, uh, Sukarno really wasn't that bad. You know, he was just an opportunist. And he was in the way." Um, so there's Oswald, you know, which I find is just a mind blowing idea. You know, Oswald in the Philippines getting ready to to invade Indonesia. Uh, it's just you one know, of these weird things that the, just... yeah.
0: I, I when I when I got your book and I was reading it, and and I I remember when I got to the part too, and, and this is a while back. I was I was sitting next to the fireplace and I. And I started just laughing, actually. And uh, I was with my wife, and she, and it was quiet in the in the family room. And she she said, "What are you laughing at?" And I mean, you know, I'm reading a book, the Hitler Legacy, and I started laughing. She thinks I'm a sick man, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And, and I said, "No, you're not going to believe this." And and I told her the story, which you have. I think it's on page one hundred nine or something. But yeah, I mean, the things that you have found just. Absolutely blow my mind. I, I got a question from a, a listener, and, and I'm going to toss this out to you. It kind of goes back to what you were talking about before. And he wants to know uh, his name's Byron, wants to know how convinced you are. Now, the the uh, the man you, the Austrian the, that mm. you believe was Hitler, right. P umlaut over the O C H. I took three years of Hitler, and I can't even s- s- pronounce an umlauted O, okay? Mm-hmm. Or three years <laughs> of German. Did I say three <laughs> years <laughs> of Hitler? <Three> years <laughs> yes. of Hitler? Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> What's, lay off the coffee, man All right, anyway, but, uh, anyway uh, how, how, how convinced are you That, uh, that he was uh, That was Hitler as opposed to Nazi Party Secretary Martin
1: Bormann Oh, that's a good question um, I'm not 100% Convinced this was Hitler One thing I'm convinced We don't know he died in the bunker the, the, the possibility that he escaped is very high The Russians never had him So we have to go back to square one and as an investigator, as somebody who relies upon evidence and documents, I have to say the jury's out. We don't know um, that Hitler died in the bunker. We really don't have any evidence to that effect. And this guy in Indonesia, as I say, he had tremendous access. He had access to the rat lines at a time when nobody knew who they were, so he obviously was connected. Uh, the rest of the address book that I saw contained names of some very famous people. Um, Well known names. Uh, He was very well connected to a lot of people who wound up in South America, others who escaped to other places. This guy was deeply connected. And then when he gets to Indonesia, he's got access to millions of dollars of gold, which explained to me one problem that I had with him. How did he survive, you know, on that remote island all those years? I mean, they they didn't have enough money on that island to pay him, you know, for, for medical care. And he wasn't really a doctor. He has the actual Georg Anton Poth. I mean, the real one was not even a medical doctor himself. He was sort of a a medical academician. He was an academic medical guy, but he wasn't a guy that you would go to for, you know, a broken leg or something. He wasn't that kind of doctor. But he had a medical um, uh, status within the Nazi party. He was the chief medical officer for Salzburg during World War II, if it's the same guy. And that guy was responsible for euthanasia programs and everything else. He would have been a war criminal. They would have wanted to prosecute him if they, if they got a hold right. of him.
2: Right, right.
1: But, but another famous oh. Nazi guy called Kaltenbrunner, you know, who was second in command of the SS, he also tried to escape Germany as a doctor. And he had medical bag with him, and he had medical documents documents of a real doctor on him when they captured him. Not fake oh. documents documents of a real doctor. So my theory is whoever wound up in Indonesia had the documents of the real Antan Kush, wound up in Indonesia with these fake documents and pretended to be that, that guy for the rest of his life.
0: And you laid out your your hypothesis, your thesis, your, your assertions extremely well, very well documented in your book, uh, The Hitler Legacy, which I, I cannot recommend highly enough. I mean, this is a fabulous book by our guest, Peter Lavenda, his website, peterlavenda.com. Now, i got to tell you, folks, uh, we got him... Uh, and, uh, just for another half hour. And, and, you know, he's working on a, on a, on a very important project, secret project. He won't tell me what it is, but it's something that's going to be extremely important. So keep an eye on Peter Lavenda. Okay. Um, and keep him in your prayers too. Okay. Whatever you do, keep him in your prayers because we got to keep him around. Whatever he's working on, you know, when he wouldn't even tell me. I, th- I promise I wouldn't tell everybody. Um, of course, you know, he said no can't tell you. So whatever he's working on, it's it's important. So uh, keep him in your prayers. If we can just change direction just a, a tad, because I want to get into something else here. Um, last, Joe, when was it? Last uh, October, I think it was, or sometime last year, we, you and I were in Newark, Ohio. Or is that where we were?
2: Yeah, that was. Um, that was. Newark? Th- yeah, that was last year. That was okay. the uh, fall of last year.
0: All right folks peter LaVenda has, has an entirely vast set of works different th- different than what we're talking about called sinister forces uh three books book one is uh the nine It's a gr- grimoire of american political witchcraft and boy i'll tell you what a, what a descriptive that accurate description of that is book two is a warm gun and book three is the secrets of the uh, or the uh, Se- secrets yeah. Okay, so here's we're kind of cutting in the middle of all this because we, on this program we talk about the importance of the influence of counterculture in this country and such. But, boy, you get into some interesting stuff when you talk about serial killers, Charles Manson, and your trip, that pretty harrowing trip that you took by car, and I and I could I was right there with you. You described it so well, the computer on your car seat you know, in, in driving through the mountains and then the rainstorm. You know what I'm talking about, right? Um, oh, yeah. Into Virginia, into uh, um, West Virginia, to Kentucky. E- yes, yes. All right. So anyway, what I was saying is, we were at um, we we had a conference where we were taking a look at some of these really odd. What are they, uh, Joe? The mounds. the mounds. The, uh, 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 the, 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 the mounds. The mounds. Right. As they're called. Right. But, but you had, Mr. Lovett, you had connect, made some connections between the, the, the areas there, some of the artifacts there, and serial killers that include, but are not limited to Charles Manson. But boy, what's going on with that? Tell us about that.
1: Well, as I say in Sinister Forces, you know, America, our country, is a kind of haunted house. There were civilizations living in this country, on, on this land, long before... Columbus, of course, but even long before the people we now consider Native Americans, um, there were cultures that built uh, mounds, earth earthworks, right, elaborate earthworks. In one case, with higher volume than the Great Pyramid of Giza, you know, some of these earthworks are vast in size. They were part of a network. You're talking about Newark, Ohio. Ohio, of course, is replete with these earthworks. And, and what we do is we build on top of them. And what we tend to build on top of these earthworks, in places like Chillicothe, um, is a, is a penal institution, is a penitentiary. Uh, in Moundsville, West Virginia, another penitentiary. And the place is called Moundsville, I mean, because it's replete with these mounds. And yet we built a prison. Uh, Squeaky Frummy, who was part of the Manson family, was incarcerated in, in Moundsville. Um, Henry Lee Lucas, famous killer, um, perhaps a serial killer, we don't know because he lied a lot, but he was incarcerated at Chillicothe, and I believe that uh, um, Manson spent some time at Chillicothe too, or in environs around there somewhere so you have a weird connection between the burial mounds and our preference for some reason of building prisons on or near these these mounds so I started looking at that and trying to figure out what's really going on here and then I realized that in Ashland, Kentucky uh, which is where Manson basically grew up, uh, spent the first part of his childhood there uh, there are burial mounds in the middle of, of the town of Ashland. In fact, it's their park. There's their so-called Central Park. There are all these burial mounds there, Indian burial mounds. And I didn't know this till I actually drove into Ashland, um, because I was basically searching for Manson's uh, background and, you know, how he grew up in these circumstances. And the first thing you see as you drive in is Ashland Petroleum, which is just belching, you know, fumes throughout the entire state and across the whole Ohio River Valley, it looks like. And then you pass by Ashland Petroleum, and you wind up in Ashland proper, and it's a kind of a spooky place, you know. And the Juds came from there, you know. Naomi Judd is from there. Uh, It's a country western connection to Ashland, which is very strong. Chuck Woolery, you know, came from there, you know. So it's not like this really weird, you know, remote connection. (laughs) Love connection, yeah. yeah. So it's not it's not Silent Hill, you know what I mean? It's a it's an actual, you know, thriving community, but the burial mounds freaked me out so I'm looking at this and I'm thinking Charlie, you know played on these mounds I mean Charlie was soaking up the vibes from all of this ancient civilization that was there and uh, no archaeologist has actually done anything about these mounds you know no one really knows they're supposedly one of the oldest cultures in America the Adena culture they call it which goes back to you know 800 years before Christ so we're talking about an ancient culture which is as old as Buddhism was there, based in Ashland and in places along the Ohio River Valley, um, it's an incredible thing to think about. So I started to research the town, and I'm thinking, what's going on here? And near the mounds, there's a um, there's this huge building, a huge, you know, sort of an apartment building. And on top of the apartment building, there are two griffins, you know, just these statues of griffins. And if you stand by and you look at it, it looks like the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top. And I thought, well, that's Strange. So I look it up, and in the Ashland uh, historical archives, actually, they were considered like to ward off evil spirits or something. It says in the town brochure, you know, they're not bashful about this at all. And they actually moved that building from its previous location to where it is now, which is pretty much in a line with the burial mounds, the Indian mounds. This entire huge brick building, not a wooden building, but a brick multi level, multi apartment building was lifted up at some point in the past and dragged over to this other location. Why would you do that? You know, this huge building, it wasn't like a small house, like you see on the highways with the truck and the flat tops that are going down. This was a huge building. So I thought, that's strange. So I kept digging again, right? What else is there about Ashland? Well, there was the Ashland Massacre. And here was... <laughs> the blue here was, yeah, go, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, just, you know, weird yeah. stuff. So here well, you have... Yeah,
0: go ahead. Go, go, yeah, no, go, go ahead. And and what was this massacre? Uh, th- this is particularly interesting. Go on, go uh, on. Go, on sir. Uh,
1: I, to me, it was fascinating. Christmas Eve in Ashland in the 1860s at some point, if I recall correctly, I don't have the book in front of me. Um, a family, a husband and wife, they leave their kids alone in their house on Christmas Eve. The mother goes one place, the husband goes someplace else. There are two children and one boy, two girls and one boy. The boy is handicapped. He's in a wheelchair. They leave them in this house on Christmas Eve, which to me sounded very strange. Why would you do that on Christmas Eve, right? Anyway, they're left behind. And it turns out they're murdered. Some people got into the house, killed them all, and then set fire to the house on Christmas Eve. Horrible story, right? Something you might find on the ID channel or something, you know, just three kids alone in the house, murdered in the house burned on Christmas Eve. Well, they, the the local authorities arrest one guy. They think this one guy is involved because he's talking about it in a cafe and they, he's kind of slow, but they managed to get him to implicate two other people. So now they've got three people they think were involved in the killing of these three kids and the town is going crazy. The town wants to, to lynch them basically, to kill them on the spot. And they do uh, kill one of them. One the men is eventually lynched from a sycamore tree. And the other two are going to be held over for trial. The The government of the state, they send the National Guard, they send troops. They're going to bring these guys on a boat, take them upriver, I think, to Maysville or something uh, uh, in Ohio or up in Kentucky, and they're going to move them along the river and give them a trial in some other town, but the townspeople are not having it. So the townspeople uh, arrange themselves on the docks, and they're trying to keep the boat from leaving with these two prisoners aboard. And the troops on board the ship open fire on the civilians and kill a few and wound a lot of others. I mean, it turns into this horrible scene, and it's the Ashland massacre, and it's over the fact that there these three kids were killed. We don't know what the motive was. Um, there's the story that the, the girls were molested before they were killed, and the boy was in the wheelchair and couldn't do anything about it. Uh and then they killed them, and then set fire to the house, etc. But this was strictly a crime of opportunity of these guys. Um then there was a whole uh effort by the newspapers in Cincinnati, which is right across the uh the river from Kentucky, of course, they're saying that they have the wrong people that it's trumped up, that this, these are not the right people, uh, so on and so forth and they're attacking Ashland and saying Ashland's you know acting rashly and all the rest of it. It turned into this horrible disgusting mess um, in which a lot of people got killed, other people got wounded, uh, and it was the massacre and nobody knows about this aspect of American history, right? It's, it's, it's strange, it's convoluted, it's all connected it was interstate, it involved all these different types of forces and this is the environment in which Charles Manson grew up, right? Um so this to me had resonance. It had resonance with a lot of things. It made me look at Kentucky closely, the way that the Indians uh used to call Kentucky uh the, the word Kentucky means a dark and bloody ground. You know, I mean even the, the Native Americans didn't want to go there. Um mm-hmm. so it was this They had a reputation for being, you know, a place of evil, a place where horrible things happened. So it made me really look at Kentucky and I spent a lot of time there uh investigating other aspects of, of things that were going on weird in Kentucky, including a haunted uh bar, you know, in another town and everything, and all this other stuff that was going on there. No more than any other state really. But Manson grew up there right across the river from Ashland in West Virginia. Bobby Joe Long was born and raised. He was a serial killer, uh, a little bit after Manson. But they were they were the two towns just face each other across the river. Uh, down a little bit further south, you had uh, Henry Lee Lucas. Uh, yep. so I'm thinking this is like a Bermuda Triangle of serial killers. You know? So I paid a lot of attention to that area and to the burial mounds and to, you know, what, what's going on? Are we, are we li- really living in a haunted house? Are there ghosts that we don't understand, you know, that are haunting us from, from the ground? You know, civilizations that we're ignoring. You know, you go to Cairo and the pyramids and the Sphinx, everything is, is there, that ancient culture. But here in this country, we, we're paving it over. But it's still there, you know. the The influences in some way are still there.
0: Man, this is, folks. You really have to 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 read. I mean, you can hear Mr. Lavenda talking about this, in, in my view, to read it and with the intricate and exquisite detail that he gets into um, this aspect of of American history of I don't want to say Native American history, but of of our past, our past. It's just an amazing interwoven interconnected intricate puzzle to me and and as an investigator I, I, I you know i ask a lot of questions and boy you provide a lot of answers here or, or a lot of puzzle pieces now you might not put them all together for all of us but they're there to be put together and i would urge everyone to uh, uh sinister forces the three books the, uh, wow you know there, there's just so many questions now you know, we, we've got I've got like a, a million more questions I can keep you on for like 7 or 8 days uh, How's your schedule look I might week, have to break know. for lunch at some point but. No, no, that's
1: alright
0: Well, I'll tell you what uh, We've got about, what, about 18 Or about 15-16 mm-hmm. minutes left of the program uh, I'm going to turn it over To, to whatever you want to talk about uh, Because we, we we cover a lot of ground And I mean, I've mean, i got so many questions I I can't possibly answer them all or ask them all. So uh, out of all of your work, what interests you the most? How's that? I mean, I mean, what excites you to talk about? When I say excites you, I mean you find just so interesting and, and, and you just want to tell people about uh, about your findings or your work or, you know, have fun with this question. Just Sure. You know, whatever you want to do.
1: Well, I got involved in all this um, really I mean, in a big way during Watergate, um, which shows you how old I am. And it was Watergate that really prompted me to start looking more deeply into relationships that exist between religion and politics. It's that connection, that intersectionality, that really intrigues me, that has intrigued me for a very long time. Because we grew up in a kind of compartmentalized uh, society in which religion is kept in a box, and you know, politics is another box, and our, our business, our livelihood is another box, family is a different box. So we, we don't always connect these things or see them as part of a continuum. And, of course, our Constitution basically protects us against mixing church and state, right? At least as far as the state's concerned, they can't make any laws about that, and you know, and, and set up an establishment of a, of a state religion. Okay, we've got it that far, but our political leaders are, by and large, or have been either religious or kind of not so religious, and these ideas, I think, influence their, their actions. And it's not just us, it's all around the world, it's everywhere. Um, in some cultures, the political leader is the religious leader. You know, uh, Tibet had the Dalai Lama, who was both, you know, political and religious leader.
2: In Japan, the
1: emperor is both. Uh, on and on and on. In ancient China, it was the same. Emperors were the sons of heaven. I mean, there was this idea of a divine mandate behind uh, political leaders. And we can make laws all we want to. To separate that and we can be very logical about it, we can be very uh, skeptical where these things are concerned and think that we're enlightened and intellectual people but at a certain level the one bleeds over into the other it's sort of inescapable uh, religious ideas influence political ideas and sometimes vice versa so that led me to studying the Third Reich I mean the Nazi Party is a perfect example of a cult, the Nazi Party was a, was a cult I mean it was not a political party the way we think of it it was a cult, and it was a cult based around Hitler, of course, as the avatar, as the Messiah, the leader, the anointed leader of the cult. But also around all of their cultic ideas. Their ideology was very cultic in an aspect of, you know, the racism, the anti-Semitism, the, the idea of, you know, the, the land is glorious and the cities are terrible. and All these ideas, all these things um, made it a religion. I mean, it was going to be a religion. Hitler was going to replace Christianity with a kind of pagan uh, uh Nazism that he was creating with Heinrich Himmler, and Himmler had created this castle, you know, in Badelsberg in Germany, that I went to, that I, I, I visited, which was going to be the headquarters of the cult, of the Nazi cult, and it was based on, you know, the Knights of the Round Table, for crying out loud, you know, it was 12 seats around a round table, and his top leaders would meet there, I mean, when it was in operation, they would meet there and meditate and go into trance and all this stuff. This is... You know, this is really who we are. We don't automatically separate religion and politics. We do in our discussions. We do in the media and all of these things. But in our darkest, deepest part of ourselves, I think we don't separate those things too much. We're still an ancient people in a sense where our leaders were both political and religious at the same time. Like the Pope, you know, for the Catholics, uh, quite often was a political leader as well as a religious leader. He had armies. They went to war, you know. Um, so Boy, these we're seeing guys. that
0: happen now. I mean, uh, I didn't mean to interrupt, but we, sure. we look at the at the Pope and, and look at what the Pope is doing right now. And, and this is not an indictment against Catholics, folks, if you're a Catholic, please. But you're looking at a structure, uh, uh, really, of a, a, a Pope who's interjecting himself into the political system of America and elsewhere. I, I, I understand. You know, I, I get that. I get the reason. However, when in history have we seen this level of, interference shall we say or influence I, I'm not sure what what the, what the word would you know proper word is but
1: well with Francis it's it's pretty overt. he's out there he's in your face uh, with Pius the 12th it was very quiet you know with mm. Pius the 12th he was running Nazis into South America you know <laughs> he was he was protecting Nazis going to North Africa to fight the Jews I mean it was it was still there he was still interjecting himself extremely into into political the political realities of the time I think they always have one way look at John uh, I mean uh, John Paul II right? Right. A very political pope. Very political pope. So you have have popes with political ideologies and agendas all the time. And it has an effect. You know, the pope is the leader of how many hundreds of millions of Catholics? And then you have, you know, a a billion plus uh, Muslims and you have on and on and on. This has an effect on our political life and our political understandings. I mean, our view of what Islam is, which is basically a very cracked and fractured view of it. It's not really... A good whole view to work with, but our view of Islam is now affecting our political discourse. You know, so to a large extent. And uh, that's being manipulated. You know, it's weaponizing. So we talk about weaponizing Islam, which has been going on now for a hundred years that we know of. Is Christianity being weaponized? You know, we have to ask ourselves these questions. A government government that can cynically manipulate religious feelings of anybody is a government you have to really, really be worried about, it. you know? what I mean,
0: very true. And I just I want to say this, you, you know. I, at first I did not believe when i was when I was thinking about the subject because I was I I, I was considering this and, and what you wrote in the quotes from your book, uh, especially uh, um, of the Hitler legacy uh, about how Islam could could be weaponized because well Christianity couldn't because it was too much, it was too wussy basically. Mm-hmm. How's that for an intellectual term? There okay, is. you know. Um, so let's let's weaponize Islam. However, now now folks, you know, you, you, let's look at this today because we could go very far on the other side and think. And, and to to our evangelical listeners, now think about this because what will be the dangers of Christianity being weaponized to the extent that it becomes not. um it becomes radical. I'm, I'll just use that term, but I know many emails from this. I, I know it don't matter, but you, you make a good point, and I think we might be seeing that happen here to some extent. That's not necessary way, 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 way far on the other side, you know. So, sure.
1: No, but yeah. I think it's I think it's a danger. I think any any government or or let's say intelligence agency, the CIA was doing this under Eisenhower's instruction, right? They were weaponizing yeah. Islam. And the Nazis were weaponizing Islam, and the, the Germans of the first world war were doing that they saw they saw the emotions, the religious feelings of people as something that could be manipulated and turned into a tool and turned into a weapon. Well, that can happen to any of us for any reason. we don't have to be Christians or Muslims we could be Jews Judaism's been weaponized you know uh, we can sure. use uh, any any religion, Buddhism, you know under the Dalai Lama to a certain extent. I write about the Dalai Lama Hitler legacy. A lot of people are nervous about that. How can you <clears throat> attack the Dalai Lama? Well, I'm not really attacking the Dalai Lama. I'm pointing out that he was a political leader who was involved, you know, in asking the CIA for help in sending troops to fight the Chinese communists, you know right and he was very chummy with a lot of Nazis. I'm sorry, but it's a fact. you know he had his picture taken with uh, with with uh, Heinrich Harrer. Uh, you know uh, he took had his picture taken with Miguel Serrano, a very famous. Chilean Nazi, a uh, Nazi ideologue who said that Adolf Hitler was the avatar that we were waiting for to cleanse the race, and maybe he's not really dead. He's living on a you know on a U-boat in Antarctica or some damn thing. But here is this guy who was an ambassador of Chile to Austria, an ambassador of Chile to India, a friend of the Dalai Lama, you know, and a rabid Nazi, Bruno Beger, a friend of the Dalai Lama, who was indicted for war crimes. The guy had Almost a hundred people killed so he could use their skeletons in an anthropological museum he was setting up during the time of the Third Reich. And he had been on the Tibet expedition in 1938, the SS expedition to Tibet, which took place in 1938. And he befriended the Dalai Lama at that point. Uh, he came back uh, after the war and became a major, you know, advocate for the Dalai Lama. And, you know, he was writing you know, blog articles about how great, you know, Tibet was, uh, how he has fond memories of Tibet until people said, Wait a minute, that's Bruno Baker. This guy had hundreds of people slaughtered during the war. People taken out of the concentration camps and killed so he could mount their skeletons. And then they took Man. his blogs down from the, the official Dalai Lama website. But these were this is what you're dealing with. You cannot separate sometimes politics and religion that cleanly because the people don't let you. People like Beger and Heinrich Herrer, the seven right. years in Tibet guy, right? Heinrich Herrer was the guy who did the seven years in Tibet. They made the movie with Brad Pitt. He was a real person. You know, he was captured. He did wind up in Tibet, uh, for a long period of time. But the guy was a Nazi. I mean, he was a, he was a, an officer in the SS. And he was a believer, as I found out later through my own research. This guy never, never gave up on his Nazi ideals. And yet he remained a friend of the Dalai Lama to the end. So you have this strange juxtaposition. You have popes, you know, befriending Nazis, protecting them against prosecution. You have the Dalai Lama with the Nazis and, you know, fighting the Chinese communists and all of this. It's a very complicated world we live in. It's not as cut and dried as the media would, you know, like you to believe. It's extremely complicated. And if we just, (laughs) if we just march in lockstep, you know, to what we're being told, on, on the news channels we're gonna we're, we're marching towards a disaster. We have disaster to indeed
0: indeed we are Eric the tech just handed me about 40 um 40 emails I don't know there it looks like there's about 40 of them here uh, in, in about five minutes uh, can you can you comment I got 40 people right now
1: okay
0: probably 400 others that want to know your thoughts as quickly as you as you can on on the Kennedy assassination and Watergate connections, or not, and or just Kennedy assassination period. The majority of them look like Kennedy well, assassination.
1: Well, you've read *Sinister Forces*, so you know. I have a very peculiar relationship to the Kennedy assassination. Um, it, it gave me an opportunity to see something that others had not seen, simply because they they were not, you know, dumb enough to have been involved like I was, but. Um, <laughs> In the 1960s, in 1968, I became involved with a church in the Bronx called the American Orthodox Catholic Church. Uh, there's a long story behind this. So we don't have time to get into it. But let's just say I was involved with that church. Um, I actually became a clergyman of that church. And it was the strangest church you'll ever want to see, close to the Bronx Zoo, appropriately enough. And it was a church that had no congregation. It was all clergy, bishops, archbishops, priests. Etc. It was an Orthodox church. Yeah, they're they're going to go somewhere. <laughs> Come on, there you go. <laughs> uh, it was a you know an Orthodox church. It was run by a former Ukrainian Orthodox priest, which should tell you a lot right there. The Ukrainian Orthodox were extremely divided during World War II. You had one group that was definitely pro-Nazi and working with the Nazis because they were anti-communist. The leader of this group that I was with, the American Orthodox Catholic Church, his name was Profeta Walter Profeta or Vladimir Profeta uh, he had been a Ukrainian priest who set up his own church, which operated as a front for American intelligence operations. Uh, that's why there was no congregation. There were only priests. The priests were being sent in and out on missions. So people would, would show up from Europe or from Africa when I was there from Biafra, from during the Biafra crisis from Nigeria. Uh, they get, you know, papers. They were ordained or made a bishop or whatever. They would get on the plane the next day and fly back. Um, A lot of strange stuff was going on. I knew there was strange stuff going on. It was 1968. All kinds of strange stuff was going on. But I didn't realize the extent until I started running Sinister Forces and I was reviewing the Warren Commission stuff and reviewing the House uh, Select Committee on Assassinations, all this stuff, and suddenly the name of this church started coming up. Mm -hmm. And the name of people that I knew started coming up. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness. what What is this all about? And then Jim Garrison was writing... uh, letters to the House Committee back in the seventies saying, you better look into these churches. I have no idea what, what they mean, but they're all over the place and they represent something. I just don't know what it is. And I'm reading this thing, and I'm thinking, oh Jim, if you were still alive I could tell you, you know. I started researching these churches for sinister forces in a big way. I started going all over the place, talking to whoever was still around, still alive from the churches. And I have their documents. They've sent me letters. I have everything in writing. The church was a front. It was being used by the FBI and the CIA both as a as a means for sending agents abroad as clergymen. David Ferry and Jack Martin were both involved with the church. I have letters from the head of our church, the guy that I knew, asking Jim Garrison to send Jack Martin back. Now those of you who follow the Kennedy assassinations know that Jack Martin worked for Guy Bannister in New Orleans. Uh, he was played by Jack Lemon in the movie JFK. Uh, David Ferry was played by Joe Pesci. Uh, in the same film. These guys were very involved in clandestine operations, very involved with the intelligence communities, and they were bishops in this church that I was, that I belonged to. Um, and all the pieces started to fit together. So the church aspect is one aspect of the story that's never been covered anywhere else. I'm the only one who has, because I happened to have been there. I knew the people involved, and it was only after I could read all the documentation That it all started to fall into place. Who was doing what to whom? Then I started talking to the bishops who were still alive. I actually have photographs of Jack Martin dressed as a priest, you know. Oh my. Yeah. I mean, it's all there. It's, it's, this is what, this is my own particular angle on this thing. So I started researching more of the churches and I found out how deeply embedded they were with American intelligence during the Cold War for a lot of reasons. They were Eastern or Eastern European churches, right? So there was a venue for moving agents in and out. Of Eastern Europe as well, and the Soviets did the same thing with Russian Orthodox churches in the United States. They were moving agents into the Russian Orthodox churches, you know claiming to be priests and who really weren't priests right they were they were KGB agents, so you had this going on all the time, and the whole Kennedy assassination happened in the middle of it. Who introduced Lee Harvey Oswald you know to to the people who would get him the job at the book depository, but a guy called George demorenschild who was thick as thieves with the white russian community in dallas you know the white russian community the russian orthodox church outside russia was a very prominent player in all sorts of anti-communist intrigues so there's a church angle to it there's um you know there's more than we could possibly get into a yeah. in couple of minutes we have left so i'll just i'll just leave it at that. <clears throat>
0: wow well th- that's a good place to leave it folks um uh, the trilogy, Sinister Forces, certainly three books, and I would recommend all three because they do tie together nicely, and they cover a good time period. Of course, we've got, uh, the, uh, the, the other trilogy, if you will, the Ratline, Unholy Alliance, and the Hitler Legacy, or Hitler, yeah, Uh, hit, correct, Hitler Legacy, the Hitler Legacy, I'm sorry. I stutter everywhere. All right, um, but all of Mr. Lavenda's books, sir, we do hope you'd come back again and visit with us sometime Um after your schedule gets a little bit uh, less I'm tight. A
1: lot lighter, sure. Absolutely. All right, brother.
0: It was great talking with you, Peter Lavenda, our guest. God bless you, my friend. Be safe out there. Thank you very much for joining us tonight.
1: Thank you very much. Glad all to right. be here folks
0: uh peter lavenda dot one of my favorite uh, r- seriously one of my favorite uh authors in terms of uh, books about hitler and about uh, uh
2: about the well the, just about everything you're I mean. right about seven more days of uh, uh interview I, time. Could, could we, we could do this absolutely uh, I, I mean honestly it's we just could. getting interesting
0: yeah i'll tell you and uh yeah drop him a line peter com. tell him you heard him on our show and uh well, let's twist his arm to come back. All Absolutely. Right.
2: Tomorrow, Hold tones. Uh, Michael no, 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 Terrell. Yep, yep. he's going to drop by and talk about frequencies. Standale will be following him, and we got a uh, Chris Pinto coming on oh. on Wednesday. Can't wait for that. We'll be back tomorrow. God bless.
1: This is the Global Star Radio Network.